If you're a Kia K5 GT and Kia Forte GT owner, this is your reminder to breathe. See that sophisticated interior? Enjoy those sensations. And now, imagine how you look from the outside and that speed that only a Kia GT sedan can give you. Sorry, I can't help but get excited. For those lives full of thrilling emotions, the all-powerful, all-fun Kia GT sedans. Kia, movement that inspires. Limited inventory available. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Man, it seems like we can't really ever do anything but history. Like, you know, we we do contemporary stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, but we're doing history. We're talking more history, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and just a history guy like myself. Eris, what's up, bro? How are you? How's everything, man? Everything's going really good. Um, You know, summer's in full effect. It's hot as hell out here. How's it over there? Same. Yep. I, so apologies if the wind kicks up at any point, but I have to have the, like, it's got to be open, dude. It's brutal. So totally. it's got to happen. But no, it's, it's also, that means that it's the time of year when they can have like outdoor fights and shit like that, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. Wish they had the old school Caesars palace to have that going, but what are you going to do? You can't, can't have it all anymore. Right. Can't Absolutely. fucking have it all, but yeah. at least like this weekend, we are going to have one thing though. We're going to have at least uh Ryan Garcia versus, Who's our boy here, dude? Come on. Javier Fortuna. <laughs> yeah, it's a big fight. Massive fight. Oh, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a, for, you know, Ryan Garcia fights are big events. So you they can't are. Whether you like him or don't like him, I know he's a very polarizing individual for boxing, but you can't deny his popularity right now. And um, anytime that he's going to fight, fans are going to tune in. And um, Fortuna's a, a very awkward guy. He's a little past it, but. Oh, you know, he's tough to fight, hits really hard, um, ugly style, always makes everybody fight very uncomfortable. You can't really look good against him. And um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Ryan has to deal with that because it's a, it's a tough style to go with. Like you said, dude, like it or not, whether people want it or not, whether you're a fan of his or not, it's, it's kind of like the Jake Paul situation. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really similar. Um, we see you a lot when they're of- all buddy-buddy on zone back in the day too. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, it makes sense, honestly. But I, honestly, it's like, you know, right, Ryan Garcia, he's a, he's a real fighter. It's not like, uh, and a lot of people will make that judgment about Jake Paul. He's not a real fighter. Obviously, I think that's kind of changing. He's going to be fighting a real fighter pretty soon. So people better start changing their mind if he winds up winning. But mm-hmm. either way, point being, uh, with both of them, we see a lot of especially like old, crusty, resistant to change boxing jerks who are like, you know, refusing to see the fact that the landscape is changing the way that fighters are promoted and are promoting themselves is changing social media is changing a lot of that and that that uh is leading to the pay and the pay structure in boxing to change a lot and a lot of people especially like i said like older school fans and stuff like that don't like that shit they're Mm -hmm. very resistant but it just is how it is so this weekend we see ryan garcia fighting going to be a big show overall because he is one of the things that we're talking about today a teen idol or a matinee idol some sort of idol whatever you want to call it we're talking about those kinds of fighters throughout history i mean there's going to be kind of a cutoff because there's 
only, you know, it's, it's tied to media here. So there's only so far back we can go with that. But nonetheless, I think there's a lot of fun, fun fighters to talk about. Before we get to that, though, dude, um, I am curious because we won't go into the specifics on, you know, your ties to this, you know, Garcia knowledge here because, you know, it, you uh, know a little bit about the Garcia camp. Wait, I probably shouldn't say that, huh? But you do know a little bit about, you know, Ryan Garcia's career and the overall goings on and stuff like that, perhaps a little bit more than the average person. That being said, it's a person to be paying attention to as far as a fighter goes, you know? I mean, dude, he's at his peak of his um, popularity right now. I mean, he had a little bit of a setback going on with his mental health. And, um, you know, I'm glad he got that taken care of. We all go through our struggles in life. And that's first priority more so than anything. So kudos to him. That being said, his first fight back, I'm not going to say I, I, he, he didn't look that impressive. I mean, I know, um, was it Emmanuel Togo that he fought? I like it's you know again not a style that's easy to look against and a very durable guy that'll probably go to distance with you but um you know ryan was shaking off a little bit of rust it's it's been going on with him man and the, the thing with that is that if you watch him and how he fights uh, since he's becoming more and more of a star and you see more of the highlight videos of him and hitting that cobra bag and doing yada 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 and all this other stuff you get the sense even with the trainer changes or whatever it may be that like he um I would say he's almost regressing a little bit, man, like in, in, in terms of like his fundamentals and everything. Like he has a lot of glaring omissions that a person at his level and where he wants to be at can, you know, one of the top guys in the lightweight division and a huge star and all that. He still has a lot of things like flaws out there that might get exploited. I don't know if it's going to happen this weekend, but think about it. The chin high in the air, uh, the lunging in with his punches, the um, underuse of his jab now standing straight up, especially if someone gets in on him, like Fortuna is definitely going to. All these things are right there, and these questions need to be answered because Ryan keeps on calling out all these guys. He wants Tank. He wants Devin. Whoever is the hot one at the moment that makes yeah. a big fight, Ryan goes on Twitter and says, we need to make this fight, yada, yada, yada. Um, he has a lot to prove in this one. He had a lot of momentum going for the Luke Campbell fight. Um, the aforementioned issues that he had to deal with happened afterwards, but he needs to rebuild that again. You know, the to-go fight didn't really work that well for him, and this is an opportunity for him to really, like, um, show him something. Fortuna has been around the block. He's fought a who's who of the division, given everybody hell that he's fought, whether it's a tall ass guy like Robert Easter or someone like Giorgio Diaz or anyone in between, like he gives you trouble. He's a tough, tough, awkward guy and he can hit hard and he's active and he can be dirty and he doesn't really care. Like he's a crafty guy. He's a veteran. He knows what he's doing in there. And um, if Ryan is not in top form, you know, this could be a recipe for an upset. I think Ryan could pull through on this one, but it all depends on how he looks too. If he, if he really, you know, this is his second time now with Joe Goose and like with a full camp, I know they worked together previously years ago and stuff and all that, but like, there's a lot to unwork with, you know, to, to undo here, man. He has to like work and rebuild him and really do something. Goosen can do that. He's a great trainer. His track record speak for itself, but you know, I'm very curious to see how Ryan's going to look in this fight, man. It's going to be a tough one. You know, if you were going to ask somebody like, Let's say Teddy Atlas. <laughs> what, yeah. what what is what are one of what are his like you know signature lines to say about a fighter like Ryan Garcia? He's not he's got no identity. He doesn't know who he is in there. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But literally, he he doesn't. He fights like he doesn't know 
exactly what style he wants to use. You know, he totally. he doesn't know whether or not Ryan he wants probably to. would have went with the Teddy Atlas back in the day. Back actually, when you think about it, if Garcia was around in the mid '90s when <laughs> Teddy became the flavor of the month. Yeah, the fad trainer. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't think about it, like you know, it was the pre-internet age, so you don't really remember it. But Teddy Atlas was the fad trainer at that one time. The stuff he did with Michael Moore, no yeah, one had getting informant's really face like that. Yeah, and oh my god! But also, too, I don't know if you, you almost um, lost your life, Teddy. He got into a fist fight too with a reporter, but in the he before, fought like I everybody. Tyson, Tyson Holyfield, the Tyson Holyfield press conference. If you watch the beginning intro, Atlas. <laughs> gets in there with some i don't know who the reporter was it was mentioned in ring magazine at one point but him and atlas start barking at each other atlas starts swinging the reporter who was a former fighter himself starts swinging. yeah isn't that the one where he walks away and he's all bloodied and stuff? yeah he has a bloody lip and there's a video of it because it was posted up the jay seclow guy that's like the third it. time that i've heard about teddy getting into it with somebody and getting the worst of it <laughs> and you see michael moore somebody literally carrying atlas away like a child and he's kicking and squirming and the reporter guy is walking away he just kind of He's smiling and he's like, and he's fixing his shirt and he's walking away smugly, like, yeah, I caught him. Fucking <laughs> guy, dude. He's, yeah, uh, he's just, he's yeah. a, he's a little bit of a, what the French call a fucking lunatic, you know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> just read his book. Uh, but honestly, as far as Ryan Garcia goes, honestly, though, I do think he fights like he doesn't know quite what he wants to do. Does he want to use distance? Because he's a fairly lanky fighter. He's got very good hand speed. Does yes. he want to use that and use defense to kind of stay away? Or does he want to kind of dart in and out? Does he want to get into a firefight? He seems like he doesn't really know. And sometimes we'll kind of go back in between. And like you said, one of the biggest issues I see is that he does in a fight as if he's in the gym hitting pads. Yeah. He'll sit there with his his chin straight the fuck up you know like not covering up at all and like do the thing where it's like duh, 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 you know not bringing his gloves back at all like it's mm -hmm. like man you're just you are absolutely begging to get just fucking remember remember uzi ahmed remember that oh, awful yeah, knockout yeah, like yeah. where he's like yeah, you know uzi. just gets folded like backward like a lawn chair one it's of the just, first memes of uh, the early days of boxing twitter right it yes <laughs> Yeah, the dancing and then just yeah, getting yeah, totally obliterated. Game. Yeah, bro. He's just asking for some awful knockout like that. Because and it almost happened with Luke Campbell. Well, know? and, and Luke Campbell's not a big puncher. He's Luke not. Campbell's, you know, already shown he's got a pretty pretty good ceiling that seemed as though it was lower than Ryan Garcia. But, you know, anyway, raises questions. And I think that you're pretty spot on here that there's a lot of distractions a lot of kind of X factors, a lot of extracurriculars, whatever you want to call them with Ryan Garcia that make it uh, really tough to know exactly, you know, whether or not you can depend on him mm. and whether or not he's going to continue to go up steadily as far as the rankings go, because you would think that on paper, he should defeat somebody like a Javier Fortuna. He should defeat somebody like that. But a lot of these kind of X factors make it tough. And on top of that, like you said, Javier Fortuna is the kind of guy who um, we were talking about this a minute ago, but I think he was signed to top rank earlier in his career, but kind of marketed as, um, you know, uh, obviously not the next Trinidad. He's Dominican. He's not Puerto Rican, but kind of in that vein, uh, definitely perhaps next Juan Guzman, I suppose, but definitely a, an explosive fighter, a very quick fighter, someone who was promising, had a very good amateur career and who should be the next kind of featherweight ish 
area thing, you know, lightweight thing, um, and kind of fizzled out or didn't kind of didn't quite meet expectations or was not looking like he would, and then wound up getting taken out pretty good by a dude named Jason Sosa a couple of years ago. Who, where the fuck is Jason? Where is that guy? <laughs> it was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, um, Burchell splattered him and kind of, oh, man, I know it's just tough guy, man, gritty guy, but yeah. had a had a really good like eighteen month window, and then kind of just went another direction. But in any case, uh, that also possibly says you know, what we're talking about here with Javier Fortuna, if that Jason Sosa was the guy to kind of just, you know, expose that crack in the armor, but Jason Sosa, where the hell is he? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. this might be bad on paper, but those X factors do bring up a lot of questions. And if Fortuna can get some punches in there, who knows? We don't really know exactly how reliable Garcia is. So is it the kind of fight that's like a, a great main event? Like not really to be honest, but it is intriguing. No, it's a very intriguing one. Any Ryan Garcia fight where he's fighting an actual name, not just like a, you know, also ran where, you know, like to go kind of was for him. Um, then it's going to be intriguing because people want to see that. Like, again, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's people out there that just want to see Garcia get splattered. They tune in hoping just to see getting, you know, a punch of him getting knocked senseless. Um, there's other that... recurring theme for the fighters today too. I think. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, same thing goes on for um like his promoter well we'll we'll talk about it in a little bit you know what i mean but like there's people out there they just hate for whatever reason other people out there they are big fans like the other garcia fans out there what makes him so popular obviously is like the young fan base who just worship him you know he's one of the main um he's one of the early fighters out there who like the main guys you can say uh from this whole like tiktok era and social media era that really just he, he became a star basically through that, the videos, his good looks, everything like that. And look at every, all these, um, his fans who obviously never watched a boxing match in their life until they met Ryan, until they saw Ryan. That they, you know, in the early days when he first um, started coming on the scene and everyone was just, you know, catching his attention, it was like, oh man, you know, you would see the signs of the audience. I remember those like signs out there, Ryan Garcia, will you marry me? Love you. Like people flaunted and all. When he fought, um, when he fought uh the veteran Velez, Jason Velez. Yeah, Jason Velez, yeah. When he fought Velez, remember the hype before that fight? Everyone went nuts because everyone thought at that point Garcia was like he was like 18 you know, or 19 at the yeah, time or yeah, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And everyone was assuming at that point that he was like the future champion of the division because he he looked it, you know what I mean? From all his highlight videos and everything he did, but then he looked normal against Velez. Velez who was always a tough guy that tested everybody, tested him, gave him a really tough fight. And um from there, like his his performances, I mean, he scored a lot of spectacular knockouts against um, lesser opposition, with the exception of, I guess, maybe Duno. But like, you know, they, it was always a little bit spotty. But then there was like the weird things going on afterwards, after those knockouts. Like, I guess he was close to that fight with Tank. All of a sudden, he veers to the side, and now he's going to fight Manny Pacquiao of all people. And then yeah, that was that, weird. That was weird. I mean, intriguing, but like. Out of totally out of left field and kind of yeah. well, and um, then that falls apart, and then then he goes back to kind of just like calling out random people, and then the Luke Campbell fight sooner or later happens, and now we're here. You know, the fact of the matter is, he's fought four times in three years. Yeah, I mean that's not a lot, and I know that he's young, but 
that seems like a lot. And, and on top of that, I'm not trying to talk shit about the, uh, the issues with his, you know, potential mental illness, uh, in addressing that stuff. That's, that's great. And I think that being open about that, that type of stuff is really valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, but just in terms of looking at his career, putting that aside, you know, the human part aside and looking at his career, he's fought four times in three years as a young fighter. That's not real great. And I think that also has shown in his last couple of performances that he's been inactive and that he has looked kind of rusty, looked kind of unsure of himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you pair that with the way that he's talked, uh, like the way that he continues to talk, it's just kind of like, I think that he's losing a lot of the hardcore base if he had much at all because they're kind of just like dude you're just using tank's name to promote yourself well you're that's just, what you've you know. been doing with a lot of that's what everyone feels he's been doing that's not even just he tank. is tank's the main one that he goes for all there, the time there's no yeah there's no that we can tell there's no apparent sincere effort from the garcia camp to make these fights nor no, it's you know, just like hey i'm a big star you should fight me we can make you know that's that's what the basis of it is usually yeah we're betting against him well you know for raleigh romero <laughs> and we're like calling out haney oh, i'll knock out haney but you know he doesn't want to fight me yada 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 at least there's um, a couple he hasn't called out shakur yet but when shakur moves up i'm sure he'll start yelling about him too you know yeah i'm sure but it's <laughs> but it's all just empty talk until there's something it's all just empty totally. talk but that being said this weekend what do you think is going to happen i mean i think ryan should be able to win this fight if you know, considering all things considered, um, I'm just curious to see how he looks. You know, I want to see like with another, with another camp with Goosen now that he's being more active. This is a quick turnaround for him, and I'm glad to see that. So, this is a relatively quick turnaround for him. So, is, like, yeah, I'll give him credit for that. Yeah, because yeah, I was just saying absolutely. he was inactive. So, you, yeah, I do have to give him credit. So, you know, it's a good quick turnaround for him. And um, if he got the rust out of him, then, you know, I'm curious to see how he's looking with Goosen. And if he can do enough, like I said, I think um, Fortuna's a little past it, but still a tough guy. And I think he'll be awkward, but um, I think Garcia will win. Um, probably by stoppage, by later, you know, stoppage or decision, like late stoppage. If he blasts him out early, then I'll be really impressed. Well, you better fucking get inside on him now. Oh, yeah. I just watched that the other day. I think I watch it at least once every two weeks or so. That's, yeah, it's the... Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a solid call. I think probably like a late stoppage, um, you know, maybe a decision like a commanding decision type of thing uh, is. Yeah, if it went to a decision, I think he'd probably win like a solid decision, you know, with room to spare. Yeah, but it's not could... going to be like it's going to be an awkward fight too, though. I think like Fortuna makes a lot of fights very awkward and often ugly, and and Garcia doesn't really know how to fight guys like that. Still, like he's a very stand up fighter, so it's going to make for a very awkward affair. Yeah, I, I agree. He's not somebody who knows how to adjust and cope with a difficult fighter right away that we've seen. So yeah. it's probably He's definitely not, not an inside fighter. So in, well, and like you said, I think that if it's if it's a blowout or if it's like a really explosive ending type of thing, that's that should be considered fairly impressive. Yeah. Um, like not career defining, but impressive and something mm -hmm. that should take him up from there. And that's that's what we're looking for. So I agree. I think he'll win. And it probably should be either a late stoppage or a decision. Anything before that, impressive, for sure. Totally. Absolutely. So as far as these like idols go, as far as these from the past, these kind of teen idols, matinee idols, whatever you want to call them, what's a good one you got to open up with here? Um, maybe cliche or whatever, but you got to start with Ryan's promoter. Just because literally, it might have been he was when I came onto the um, 
<coughs> Holy shit. Ugh. Excuse me. Um, when I first became a fan, Oscar De La Hoya was one of my first favorite fighters. And I remember hearing all the backlash reading in magazines, how there were a lot of people you'd read in the come out writing sections at Reg Magazine and KO. Um, some of the other writers like Mike Katz and others would just criticize them. Well, there's a lot of people that did not like Oscar either, but yeah, I was an Oscar fan. So, yeah. I think the, I think that he was kind of the Ryan Garcia, the reaction to Ryan Garcia is pretty demonstrative because it's pretty similar to mm. how the reaction to Oscar De La Hoya was until I think Oscar De La Hoya kind of got his detractors shutting up a little more early. He was a little more consistent with his work. He, you know, he was uh, busier. He was, uh, you know, the, the win over, what is it? Uh, Breedall. Um, Jimmy Breedall. Yeah, it, that was, it was a little bit of a cherry pick. Not, you know, we know that. But regardless, it was clear that he was going for something a little bit different. Whereas Ryan Garcia's uh, career has stalled a little bit in comparison. Um, well, two different errors too, you know what I mean? No, like, oh, no question. And on top of that, the, the crazy, Olympic gold medal. Thing too. Yeah, that's, it's been 30 years now, basically. Yeah, that's massive. Um, since Oscar won the gold medal at the 92 Olympics. Um, I remember that. I totally remember that. I remember the yeah. stories about his mom, and I, I, I remember that very well. 92 Olympics was the first one I, I remember watching too, like when my Me dad was kind of said, Me yeah. too. Yeah. Definitely don't remember watching that as a four year old in '88. So, <laughs> um, oh. but yeah, Oscar turned pro, and like, but the thing also, too, would like he turned pro in a tougher era, you know what I mean? Like, in terms of like crowds as well, I would think like more critical and just like really like the the, the LA West Coast crowds of 70s, 60s, from before 80s, not always just very hardcore love their tough guys what everything oscar was never really embraced as that you know what i mean he was so clean cut and baby faced and not really considered i guess am i am i being right here that he wasn't considered like a true mexican i guess in the eyes of a lot of people so like yeah you know, he had, a, he had it just he wasn't macho enough for a lot of them. he just wasn't that type of guy they had chavez yeah. he had guys you know think of you're getting the same thing i'm getting bro um yeah, what the fuck um <laughs> Yeah, Gennaro Hernandez, uh, there were a number of fighters from around that time who were also good looking, but I mean, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm the supreme understander of the dynamic between uh, Mexicans and Mexican Americans or Chicano culture or anything. I'm Especially as a white guy, I don't know that shit, especially not firsthand, but I did grow up in Southern California, so I feel like I probably know a little bit more about it than somebody who did not. That being said, there were other fighters who were Mexican, who were born in Mexico, who were also good looking, who were also um, box office attractions around that time. So if you were in the Southern California area, you didn't have to like Oscar de la Hoya. He was kind of like one of many options as far as like Hispanic fighters or Latin fighters, however you want to describe them, uh, that, that you could be a fan of. And on top of that, and on top of that, he wasn't even the only uh, Mexican and, or Mexican-American fighter on the 1992 team. In Raul Marquez, uh, Diamante, he was on the 1992 team um, as a junior middleweight. And although he was born in Mexico, he had moved to Texas. And I think that he was just dialed into a different 
like uh, different kind of Mexican American community, but also he spoke Spanish fluently. And, you know, I think, well, yeah, I think that that made it a, a little bit different for him. So anyway, point being, it wasn't like Oscar de la Hoya was the only option for like a eight to 15 to 20 year old or whatever, like uh Hispanic boxing fan, you know, it, to, to be a fan of, there were many fighters that they could be fans of, but Oscar de la Hoya did definitely represent a certain kind of uh, demographic among them or a different slice of them for sure. It was just that it's difficult. That's always been, I think, difficult to navigate in the Mexican and Mexican, Mexican American communities where uh, generally speaking, the stereotype when it comes to boxing, that is, is that you need to be tough. You need to be rugged. You need to never say die. You don't give a fuck if you got a cut, like you're going forward, you know, you're going out on your shield, whatever the case may be. We clearly know as boxing fans of like the past that that's, not how it is there have been countless mexican fighters over the decades that have been great boxer punchers and mm -hmm. supreme boxers etc it's not just one style but that is the stereotype and that is the aesthetic that is generally speaking what's valued and so a pretty boy who kind of speaks softly is maybe into dialed into his emotions a little bit more because the, his emotions are part of his story that they're trying to push on people as far as his mom dying. And I don't, again, not trying to make light of it or talk shit of it, but as far as the promotion of it, you know, it, I think that made it tough for a lot of people and, to digest. And then in, in the fact of the matter is that also too, they felt that he was being pushed to the moon without really being tested. That you know, too, you yeah. gotta think his, when he first turned pro, he, if you look at his record on box rec, like they, he fought solid. He, they weren't like absolute cupcake fighters, but like, you know, it wasn't murderers world themselves. And he was still, you know, he was like, he it was, it was carefully navigated. Yes, it was totally carefully navigated, as most top ranked prospects always are. I mean, that's why they have the track record that they do over the years. Can't knock them for that. Um, but like, you know, when he finally like stepped up and fought an actual name, he fought Jeff Mayweather. Most people know him, obviously, as Roger, uh, Roger, as Floyd Mayweather's uncle, the lesser of the lesser known of the two brothers. But he was always just known as a fringe contender when he finally fought like a world former world champion. It was Troy Dorsey. And if you know Troy Dorsey and you can pitch him up to ask Oscar De La Hoya, it's almost like putting Muggsy Bogues compared to like, to like Charles Barkley. It's, you know, height difference there was that's what That's what also made it so comical and, so, and people so critical of him early on was that they felt like he was kind of gaming the system weight-wise because he I was mean, when so you big. I a guy like Dorsey, Dorsey was a very tiny guy that was going neck to neck with Jorge Paez, another future De La Hoya victim. But um. <clears throat> You know, that was like his height. And Dorsey was a come forward guy. He yeah, wasn't like a lightweight. He was, De La, they made De La Hoya look like a killer at lightweight, yeah. you know? So De La Hoya pasted him around the ring. Dorsey, to his credit, didn't get knocked down. He just got cut. But like he, you know, got blessed. So that's what that was going on with him early on. And the aforementioned Bradell, who went on to have a really solid career later on, um, a, you know, a few years later, I think, as a champion. But um, he, at that point, he was just, you know, a novice himself against De La Hoya, chosen merely for the fact so Oscar could pick up a WBO belt, which considered in 1994 was next to nothing. So it wasn't until, in my opinion, that he, when he fought John John Molina, the rugged, very, very tough former uh, junior lightweight champion, and a guy who was comparable to size to De La Hoya, very savvy, very tough, and wasn't easy to knock out. That's when Delahoya started earning his stripes because Molina gave him some business that night.
you know, Molina was a tough dude. That guy probably tough should be. Man. Yeah, he should probably get a little bit more credit. Get talked about yeah. Now, and on top of that, a pretty a rugged dude, a tough dude, a pretty good puncher, and in some pretty decent fights too. Oh no, absolutely, man. He gave Delahoyer a tough fight. It got dropped early on. He was wearing um, I think he was wearing a hairpiece. They did because Delahoyer said he wanted to knock it off, but he couldn't. And um, but yeah, Molina went the distance and marked him up and gave him a rough fight. And then after the soon after that, you know, you would see him in subsequent fights. He gave a prime Shane Mosley at lightweight, absolute hell for a few rounds before he got stopped. Um, he beat a few, you know, fringe contenders. He was around until the early two thousands, man. Tough guy. And one of the uh, a somewhat underrated trilogy. I'm not going to pretend like it was like you know, fantastic. Oh, it was Tony Lopez. Yeah, dude, Tony yeah, the Tiger right. Lopez. Pretty good trilogy. Uh, oh. pretty good trilogy between them. And uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think that's when like you know, because he knocked out Piaz before that. But again, Piaz was another extremely undersized guy compared to De La Hoya. When he beat Molina, and Molina actually gave him a fight that people wanted to see. Like Oscar won with room to spare, but like Molina gave. I remember watching that was one of the first fights I watched live with my dad. I would think, and I guess I think my mom watched it too. And like it was, I remember I was like, oh wow, you know, because I thought Oscar was gonna blast him because I had no idea who Molina was. And yeah, Molina scrapped back in that fight. He did. He did. But from there, that's when everything skyrocketed. You know what I mean? Because his very next fight was the was the pay per view rival. Uh, his pay per view rival, Rafael Ruelas. And that was the whole crosstown where everything came into question. And you can talk about the popularity, you know? Yeah, dude, the Ruelas brothers uh, definitely had also kind of their own following uh, in Southern California. And they were with Ten Goose Jim. Uh, you know, uh, Goosen brothers had handled their careers. I don't know if from the beginning, but I know from pretty early on. And yeah, like I know that they had kind of pit uh they were also kind of quintessential mexican american you know i guess as far as that dynamic goes that we they revisited that several times for de la hoya even earlier in his career just kind of that crosstown rivalry or like you know here's this prospect and we're pitting him against this prospect type of thing you know they did that a lot for him mm -hmm. and the, for this fight too man it was like there was a whole background Rellis and Delahoya didn't obviously didn't like each other. Um, I think they had fought as amateurs or they had sparred something or another, but there was always just like a lot of back and forth. Rellis was talking about how he was more macho, more tougher. He was going to knock him out stronger, yada, yada, yada. Oscar, how embarrassing know, how many people said that to Oscar and then got slapped around. Time, and that's what happened to him, man. Rellis, <laughs> who was a tough guy, but they, you know, he was a pretty clumsy fighter too, you know, kind of walked forward, chin in the air, um, just churned tough dude, but. Oscar picked him apart, man. That was a brutal knockout. Just pop, 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 pop. Just splattered him. But that was a career-defining performance for him. But um, again, people started criticizing Oscar again after that because it looked like he was cherry-picking. He fought Jesse James Leha soon after that, who was extremely undersized, tough, crafty guy, somewhat underrated. Um, Daryl Tyson, um, who was... I mean, but that was a tune-up fight. And Gennaro Hernandez, the aforementioned late Chicanito Gennaro Hernandez. Well, not so much he was criticized. This guy, freaking ever. Oh, I, from all accounts, I wish I could have met him, but I heard he was an absolute prince. Super nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. You got to meet him a couple of times. Yeah, he was. Um, I, I think that it was because he was on the Spanish language broadcast team for. Um, I think it was at the time HBO Latino. Okay. I believe whatever it was he was on some broadcast team and he was in vegas a couple times 
but the last time he came and he hung out with us in a lounge in Vegas a couple times, but the last time, and I have some photos, he looked kind of sickly. He didn't look super good. I think it was after he had already started uh, fighting cancer. Uh, but anyway, long story short, soup, just one of the nicest guys I've ever met in boxing. Yeah. He worked for copy box as well. And um, yeah, that I didn't know. Yeah, he did. But um, maybe yeah. that's what it was, but I'm pretty sure he was on a broadcast team at some point. But he did. Ahead, he, was, he definitely did that. But yeah, it's just absolute great guy. But um, gave Oscar, you know, gave Oscar Delaware a good fight too. It wasn't bad. And he was comparable in size com- compared to others. But that, uh, that was the night that Hernandez had his nose shattered into you know, like an eggshell. It was really, really brutal stuff. But again, Oscar had to go through more when he had to fight a guy like Chavez. I know we're going through like a your career rep- retrospective, but like this is what it deals with. You know what I mean? Is when he fought Chavez the first time when like things really came to a head in terms of popularity and all that, because now he's fighting the hero of Mexico, the dude that is like, like been God to that country and to a lot of other people in the world for going on to, you know, since the earth, since the mid eighties and he's been invincible and even though he lost and he's been slowed down a little bit he's still considered a god and delahoya is a mere mortal compared to him so growing up in san diego needless to say you know it's a there are a lot of mexicans in san diego which is one of the big reasons why i am i don't know how i would say it i guess i just enjoy mexican culture overall but uh, in any case, I do remember, I had a lot of Mexican friends, friends growing up too, but I remember in uh, junior high when I was in eighth grade, I remember being in PE because I had PE and that was my first class of the day. It was like fucking 7.30 in the morning or whatever the fuck it was. And uh, I had that class too. No, oh, it was so awful. Absolute work. And we were always outside because it's San Diego. So it's like never raining. So you're always outside no matter what, which in a way is good, but in a way also kind of sucked. Point is we're outside on these like handball courts and my Mexican homeboys are over here talking about De La Hoya Chavez. It was like a couple of weeks before the year ended or something like that. I remember that shit. They're like arguing about it and shit. You know, one friend is mad and saying Chavez is going to win. Next one, the other one's like, come on, dude, Oscar De La Hoya is going to work him. And anyway, that was again kind of falling back on this dynamic of, uh, between this uh, push and pull between like whether or not Oscar De La Hoya is Mexican enough. I mean, dude, he faced that his entire career. Uh, a lot of the problems he faces to this day are of his own making. I'm not going to try to make too many excuses. Oh for no, that's De La Hoya. But, we knew in the '90s, and what they were talking about is a whole different animal from. Yeah, I mean, this is today. So, but you yeah. do have to, I think, on some level, kind of like perhaps even a Mike Tyson, uh, feel bad for him because yeah, sure. the microscope was really on him. There was a lot of pressure to be something perhaps he didn't feel he was, or didn't want to be, or wanted to be a different way. I don't know. Who knows? So you do uh, kind of have to feel bad for him because he imagine, did everything that was asked of him. But imagine the. Uh the people that were in charge of like keeping him in line back when he was like, you know, right. Cause he can't, you can't tell me that he wasn't running around a little, you know, running around back in the day in the nineties. I think that right around there, right around the Chavez fight, yeah. like right around the Chavez fights, I should say, I think that's where it started kind of spiraling. That's where it started kind of kicking up. You know what I'm saying for him? Like mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the background where he started getting into trouble and we yeah. can verify for sure that it was the late nineties that he really started getting into trouble. Totally. I mean, totally. After, I the, mean, after, after the, after the pop album came out. Yeah. Well, 
I'm just, I don't even know. When did that even come out? When was that the late 90s? I want to say 98, maybe 99. Okay, that sounds about right. Yeah. But this recurring theme we're seeing with a lot of these fighters who are generally speaking young, good looking, uh, we're going to see it again. Mm-hmm. But there it's like the fame goes to their head you know this this um this amount of notoriety and the attention they get especially from women another common theme is that it goes to their head and it winds up i'm not saying the women themselves it's the men and their and the way they deal with the women not the women let me make sure that's understood but that's you know it fucks them up and the same thing happened with oscar you know when he defeats uh julio cesar chavez it definitely opens up a little bit of a rift, I think, among Mexican fans who are, we've seen this. It's a bit stereotypical, probably played up a bit much, but it's nonetheless true. When one guy defeats the old idol or the old whatever, you know, the old hero, like now that guy's hated at least temporarily. You oh, know, yeah. Like, the old adage. that guy, you know? I mean, That's like Marciano, not so much, I guess, because people loved him already, but Larry Holmes definitely. That's a prime example, you know. It, it's happened like so many times. And so I think that we saw a little bit of that dynamic and that also we still well, Especially continue. with the way the fight ended kind of anticlimatically, you know what I mean? With Chavez just start, suffering a gnarly cut from a punch that wasn't even really hard. It was just like a jab or something. Then you find out beforehand that his kid, which I don't know if it was Omar um, Chavez Jr., that uh, actually sliced him play fighting with his dad beforehand. So... That, that whole fight was just that whole promotion, bro, was a clusterfuck. All right, man. That, that whole thing from Aram deciding to, to to try to stick it to pay per view, so he wanted to put it on closed circuit like it was the seventies, and um, people talking about going to the theaters and all kinds of things being messed up, nothing working, the, the satellites out, like a typical fight back in the seventies. And then Aram thinking he was going to go back to closed circuit and close out pay per view somehow, and immediately went back to pay per view after that, like, ah. Man, that whole card was just weird. Very, very mm-hmm. odd. Well, and after after that, De La Hoya went to Miguel Angel Gonzalez, who at the time was a pretty good fighter and undefeated. Um, but then yeah. that kick, that kicked off his welterweight run, which and was that's at that point. I think he had earned the respect from everyone in generally, and kind of kicked that stigma of just being, you know, whatever. Why? Well, I, I think that the getting the decision over Whitaker, like it didn't really help him in terms of what people thought of him like i think that they they felt that his fame and notoriety helped him get that decision mm-hmm. but it wasn't like he was out of that fight it wasn't like he totally embarrassed himself in that fight like a lot of people like to pretend like no whitaker kicked the shit out of him it's like no nah, it, no, it was he didn't. a relatively it was close, a close fight. fight you know it was a, it was a close it was fight that i felt whitaker, whitaker made him look stupid but I mean, Whitaker make everybody look stupid, you know? Yeah, and I, I felt Purnell probably should have won the fight, but I'm not, like, sad that Oscar won. You know, I, I get it. No, nah, um, you know, it was just, it was a clash of styles. And Oscar having uh, Professor, what was it, Professor Rivero, Jesus Rivero in his corner that night probably didn't help matters because that guy was a more defense-oriented um, boxing trainer. And fighting like that against Whitaker is definitely not going to help to your advantage. So yeah, he tried to box with him far, far too much. And, and that, you know, so. Yeah. And the well, his welterweight run though, I mean, in something that they, uh, this kind of started here and this is something that, you know, you can't criticize Oscar for. He fought basically everybody he should have fought, have fought at welterweight and around welterweight at that time. 
because he did. Uh, whether you thought he won is obviously a different story. But again, as we were talking about, this is also kind of when his notoriety and fame really skyrocketed. But when he really started also getting into trouble was when he started uh, the first couple times that he was publicly accused of sexual assault. I mean, like it happened several times. And then it wound up in the early 2000s coming out that he had like several children out of wedlock and I mean, it, it wasn't just that. It went deeper than that. Like, children he was, like, denying. And it was... Anyway, I don't want to get too much into the specifics, just the downfall. Uh, and that was clearly... It's actually kind of amazing how long the downfall was and how long he was still a fighter after the downfall, to be honest. Totally. I mean, he, he's always had a... He was always going to be a star in the thing. But, like, one thing he had to give Delaware credit for is that even with all of his outside distractions and everything he was going when when he went to when he started training and got ready for a fight he got into tip-top shape and he took that seriously and always brought himself to the best and to his peak usually and um with all that being said too like he always you know was, was a great fighter so with him always being in top shape and especially when he got motivated for fights like he, he became more so like near the end of his, like in the mid 2000s, started picking and choosing his opponents because he was that guy in boxing that could do that. He had been that guy for years, but instead of just like, okay, I'm going to fight like a Javier Castillo just to pick up this belt. Like he wanted like, you know, big fights, came back, fought Mayorga, who was still a name. All yeah. right. Waited a little <clears throat> bit. Now I'm going to fight Mayweather soon after like, you know, picking fights, trying to choose around and like, when he, came back, he would motivate him. When he came back from the Mosley fight, and fought Arturo Gatti. I yeah. think that was to me when it was like kind of signaled that he was like, I don't want to say phoning it in because he didn't phone it in, but it was almost kind of like he was saying like, dude, I'm just going to fight whoever the fuck I want. There's nothing you could say about it. Totally. You know, I'm, I'm way bigger than this dude. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to slap the shit out of him. And he did. That's, pre that's precisely what he did. Yeah, and it was ugly. Guy. And it was kind of just like, you know. God bless Gotti because he fought his heart out that night too. Yeah, he he went in there and he did it. But it was just, it was, he was, Deloy was out of his class and far too big. Huge. Just blasted him, bro. It was Well, bro, you know, you, you, you got gamashed, bro. You got yeah, Joey gamashed, yeah. man. Totally, totally. Well, <laughs> you, Oscar, you know, I'll give him that, man. Well, all of his misgivings and everything that he, well, I'm not talking about his outside the ring stuff, but like all of his, all of the stuff that he went through during his career, I think he, at the end of it, he was able to gain universal respect and admiration for everybody. I'll say this much, when he fought Trinidad, he definitely had the Mexican pop, you know, public on his side for that one until he pulled the stunt that he did. Yeah, until like round eight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, but, um, you know, like it, it took a while and it did, but I think he crossed over that hump. And that fight, I, I have rewatched that fight a few times. Ugh. Oh, God. Sorry. But it's like, <laughs> there are a few rounds where almost nothing happens offensively. Like, there's almost no meaningful, like, a couple punches land, mm -hmm. but they do almost no damage. And I'm, and, I, and I'm just looking at it going like, wow, like, how, how, how? Aye, aye, aye. Crazy, though. But in any case, um. Yeah, there's absolutely no question that in the last few decades, Oscar De La Hoya has been a massive, massive star. And a lot of it in that earlier part of his career was kind of teen idol status, you know? Oh, absolutely. He, um, I, if he, like, even more so, I guess, than Ryan. Like, I know Ryan had the ability of social media and all that, but there was, 
when I tell people, man, like I imagine if Oscar did though, you know? Yeah. Dude off the charts. I can't even imagine. Remember. All right. For instance, you want to talk about the popularity of Delahoy compared to anybody else. Um, Think of the Patrick Chapontier fight. All right. That dude was an app, you know, Chapante was, wasn't even a contender. How he got into position to fight Delaware for the belt, God knows how. But somehow against an absolute no-hoper, not even imagine, where did they put that fight in the Alamo Dome or something? Oh, I'd, I'd have to look, but. Actually, hold up. I can tell you. Uh... Yeah, uh, Sun Bowl in El Paso. Oh. Okay, okay, Sun Bowl in El Paso. But huge packed out of the packed to the rafters completely like i remember it was jam-packed and it was crazy and they had people i think some lady made the the front uh the front cover of the ring magazine because she had a big sign up that said i love you oscar marry me oscar some shit like that and yeah it, it it was it was crazy it was like you know that that was oscar mania at its peak right there honestly going into the early 2000s dude we used to joke about it and it would be that if you went to Las Vegas, if you went to like a big fight in Las Vegas, that was different than going to a big fight like other places. Uh, you know, I would imagine that going to a big fight in Madison Square Garden has that yeah. similar kind of, you know, feel, big fight feel to it. But then when you went to Vegas for a De La Hoya fight, different, different animal. Totally. And the amount of women that showed up for it. So I've heard. Just different, bro just different that's it i mean yeah he he drew the women bro like i mean he he still does he still does even now (laughs) obviously not to that degree ussa yeah baby yeah baby baby. ussa baby yeah (laughs) sounds like me at like 18 after like three zimas fucking guy (laughs) but yeah but you know teen idol status confirmed absolutely no question um so let's let's take it back a little bit let's take it back and let's just go let's draw a direct chain from one golden boy to another then sounds good i think i know where you're going with this yeah of course you know the one of the original golden boys but look i every time we do this i have to do some sort of like outside of boxing type of history lesson just because i wouldn't be me if i didn't do this so allow eris a moment to scoff and go this fucking guy but (laughs) (laughs) look uh southern california um is really important for kind of like this this era that we're kind of talking about I, what, earlier in the show, I brought up kind of a time limit or whatever for the fighters we could talk about, because obviously this teen idol type of or matinee idol type of thing is limited somewhat to how media can portray these fighters and how they are um, consumed by the public, I guess. And so it really wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that we started to see like magazines and other kinds of media hyping up fighters who were like good looking and things like that. That's not to say that there weren't good looking fighters or fighters who were recognized for their looks before this. It's just that, um, you know, that a big reason for this was the way that some of the pop, some of the population was changing in a certain uh, couple parts of the United States, specifically Southern California. So like, for instance, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a bunch of job contracts 
had helped initiate uh, basically a wave of Mexican immigrants into Southern California and specifically Los Angeles. And so from that point, from the early 1900s until World War II, um, it kind of happened a few different times where there were like waves of specifically Mexican immigrants into Southern California. And during World War II, there was a big labor shortage. Um, actually, I mean, there were shortages of everything. And so for boxing fans or fans of like collecting boxing memorabilia, like myself or like Eris or like some of the people who listen or watch, what that also means is that sometimes it's a real pain in the ass to find issues of the ring from World War II because there was a paper shortage. Uh, so like, for instance, I have a bunch of really, really nice uh, copies of some 1930s issues of the ring, like really nice, but you can't find really nice copies of issues of the ring from World War II very often. And if you can, they're usually ex more expensive than a usual issue for this very reason, because there were a bunch of shortages. Point being, the labor shortages led to um, a bunch of Mexican immigrants being brought in to work. And so, for instance, uh, there was something called the Bracero Program that was, was started in 1942. I'll get to the boxing, I swear. But it was basically just an agreement that guaranteed immigrant workers uh, food, shelter, et cetera, in exchange for their labor. So in the 1940s and 50s, the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, it became really hugely important to the fight community in Southern California, and especially to Mexican and Mexican-American fight fans. Uh, a handful of the fighters that we're talking about today fought at the Olympic Auditorium. Um, and I mean, we'll come back to that. There's a really good documentary called 18th and Grand about the Olympic Auditorium too that I'd highly recommend that goes into a lot of the wrestling background and boxing background of the auditorium. But in any case, uh, the auditorium fig figures prominently in some of these fighters today. But Art Aragon, Art Aragon was the original golden boy. And so hopefully I kind of set the stage a little bit so people understand, I guess, the dynamic around the Olympic Auditorium in Southern California, where a lot of these kind of teen idols and matinee idols were produced, obviously because of the proximity of Hollywood too, and the kind of classic Hollywood era or golden Hollywood eras in the 40s and 50s, um, where there was a lot, there were also a lot of boxing movies and a lot of great classic movies were about boxing or in one way or another had boxing as a backdrop. Mm -hmm. But Art Aragon uh, was a young guy who had 13 amateur fights, um, but he nonetheless went on to be still, I believe, the record holder for sellouts at the Olympic Auditorium. Um, but he was a famous womanizer. He was a guy that people called Arrogant Art. He was booed if he won, booed if he lost. Uh, he dated Mamie Van Doren, who was a famous actress. He was rumored to be romantically linked to like several other famous actresses around the time. And yeah, he was really um, kind of a mixture of beloved and hated, depending on, I guess, the day or the opponent in Southern California, but definitely one of the original kind of idols. You know, he was absolute popular man you couldn't you couldn't really beat the guy that arrogant was um he you know in the 50s um the person that i guess you can only rival being a bit as big a heel as him would be someone like gorgeous george in wrestling yep you know, totally like someone that just 
reveled in being a heel. He loved being a bad guy. He liked booing. He liked the crowd booing at him. He liked when he knocked down an opponent and beat him up. He would sneer at them and stuff like that. Like he enjoyed that stuff. Women loved him because he was a bad boy. Some of them did. Other people, people just wanted to see him, you know, see his face get splattered. And to his credit, he fought a who's who in Southern California, man. Like the, there was a lot of really, really tough guys out there. Guys like Carlos Chavez, who I don't want to say, cause I actually looked up on that fight before we started. And it looked like that he might've taken a dive on that shit. Um, or he claims that he did, but, um, Another one like Philip Kim, who was a really, really tough guy. And that was a big fight that was built up for that point. Aragon beat him to oblivion. Um, he built himself up to the point where he was able to get a title shot against Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a very peculiar case as the 50s lightweight champion in a you know weird time period, which obviously we've documented before because boxing at that point was completely controlled by the mob, IBC. Yeah. So Carter was the type of fighter who... Um, on any particular day, he can look very good or he can look very bad, you, depending on, you know, you didn't really know what was going on out there. But um, as is one, Carter was the type of fighter that, like, when it came to title fights, he was he could be up and down. But when it came to non-title fights, which at that point didn't really matter much, he was prone to lose them at points, which he did at this point to Aragon. And losing a non-title fight to Aragon, which meant that he was going to get a big title fight with him afterwards. And... At that one, Carter actually turned on the heat for that one and beat him up. Be arrogant, silly, dropped him a few times, won a commanding decision. But um, from there, you know, he never became like a guy that he never really reached that potential to be a world champion, but he didn't need to be that because he was already at that, that point of that like popularity that the best way to describe it to another wrestler, for instance, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper never had to become a world champion. He was the character of him was so good and what he did and his popularity wise and how much he can get the crowd to react either they'll love him or hate him or whatever it may be that that was that was good enough right there. Arrogant obviously wanted to be world champion. He had a long career and he fought a who's who of everybody. But when you look down upon and you think about it, like he didn't have to be a champion to be as popular as he was. Hell, he was one of the most popular fighters of that generation of that time. And he wasn't a champion. But I tell you right now, he was much more popular than a lot of the clean cut very quiet you know mundane guys of that time period because you know during that time it was a very um you know it was suburban america people weren't used to a loud mouth like arrogant right and even now even now people still try to say that there's like these unwritten rules about boxing and etiquette oh, totally. it's a gentleman's yeah. sport it's, i mean it's like no gentleman's sport really what? come on you don't listen to our fucking podcast bro gentleman's sport yeah it's you know they, they still try to uh, impress these kinds of weird kind of etiquette or whatever rules and back then even more so where you're supposed to act a certain way uh now if fighters get start pushing at a press conference mm -hmm. or pushing it away and that yeah that's just kind of normal back then that would have been a big thing like that doesn't happen all that often because it's not expected to happen but art aragon like you said is the kind of guy who's pissing off the audience on purpose he wore like gorgeous george he wore a gold uh yep. robe and he would walk down the aisle like strut down the aisle and like you know basically thumb his nose at people and stuff like that and you know go you know it, man. Yeah. yeah do and, that and type it, of shit like a wrestler getting their face totally. and shit and people people hated it but also loved it that's the whole thing and that's the type of shit that muhammad ali understood it floyd mayweather yeah. clearly understands it that it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be a nice guy, a good guy, any of that shit. 
You don't have, they don't have to want to see you win. They just have to want to see you. That's it. But they have to know also too that Arrogant was a tough, tough guy. That he was. Like, he was a good fighter. Yeah, very good fighter, man. He beat um Don Jordan, who was a very peculiar case yeah. himself. Yeah, speaking but, uh, of mafia. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Speaking of just crazy, um, and gotta do a podcast on him one day. That's an interesting. Yeah, he's his own. Yeah. He's yeah, he's his own. I think. <laughs> um, and you know, to the point where like he he they were Enrique Bolaños um chico vihar who was a very very popular fighter yep. in his time period like these were all guys these were a who's who of 50s contenders and they all fought each other and i want to bring so i wanted to say the next thing i remember about arrogant too when i was a kid i don't know if you remember this pat but he was featured you know how they would do the hbo pre-fight features he was interviewed and featured i think on one of them for a de la Hoya fight i'm when not gonna like, say you're wrong like they were meeting, they were, they, were, they were like the meeting of the golden boys and stuff like that but oh, yeah, well, him, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't specifically remember that. I don't remember what fight it was, but that was something that did happen. I do remember him being mentioned in a few Ring Magazine articles, like, you know, okay. talking about Golden Boy or whatever it was. But I remember, I, I remember that, I think it was with Delo, had to have been with Delo Hoyer. I'm sure, yeah. Been? But it was the whole, um, yeah, totally. Well, somebody, especially if it's uh, somebody who, who worked on the Olympic Auditorium uh, documentary might be chiming in and saying like, hold on, you know, Art Aragon's actually from New Mexico. True, but he yeah. did uh, move to LA and fought out of the LA area. So it's, you know, he was a transplant, but he was, he was pretty much from LA at that point. But even more importantly, uh, the environment that he was fighting at, whether it was the Legion Stadium, whether it was Wrigley Field in LA, don't start sending me DMs talking about Wrigley Fields in Chicago. <laughs> Look it up. It's in LA at this time. Uh, that literally happens every single time I post about Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. <laughs> happens every time. But oh. um, so many of these fighters were Mexican fighters. Chico Bejar, if they weren't Mexican, they were Hispanic, were very tied mm-hmm. into the, the uh, crowds that were often coming to the auditorium, et cetera. You know, but also Enrique Bolaños, that was a big one who was very popular in the Mexican uh, community at the time and had uh, started fighting at the auditorium, was popular at the auditorium, and Art Aragon beat him twice. And according to Art, he said that was when fans really started hating him, was when he knocked out Enrique Bolaños. And that, you know, yeah, yeah, that they were, that that was their guy. And so they were pissed and that he just embraced it at that point, that he just kind of leaned into it. But yeah, and, Carlos Chavez, a number of those guys. And, you know, it, what's interesting, too, is that, like, everyone wants to see a guy like Aragon, like I said, catch his comeuppance, like gorgeous George would, like other heels in wrestling would, you know. And you always want to see the bad guy finally get flagged. You look at Aragon's record, he lost 20 times. I mean, that happens in that in that era. That's actually not a bad – 90 and 20 in that era is not yeah, a bad – That's a pretty good record in that era. Considering who he fought. But then you look at how many times he got knocked out or stopped. Only three. So at that point, you look at that and you're like, geesh, all right? You know, how many times he would go there and probably make a relatively close fight, but he would always go the distance. And people are just going away pissed off even more because yeah, he didn't get knocked out. He wasn't, yeah, yeah, he wasn't taking out on a stretcher like they wanted. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he definitely knew how to play that role. There's absolutely no question. There's And there's actually a really funny story that he told uh, years, years, years later about uh lauro salas one of the guys that he fought i think he fought him twice maybe even three times but point is uh he said that he was a he was a good looking guy 
Art Aragon um, had kind of teen idol looks, as we said, you know, really expressive eyebrows, you know, good, good looking dude, curly hair. Um, and he said that he was already kind of a womanizer by this point. And he was known for going to a, a few of the local LA watering holes from time to time. And he had gone to some place on Sunset Boulevard and he ran into Lauro Salas. He said he walked into the door and the first thing he saw was quote unquote, that ugly mug. Cause he said that Salas was ugly and that he hated him cause he was ugly. And that the first oh, thing he no. saw when he walked in the door was Salas smiling at him. And so he took off his jacket and started fighting him right there. And that they got into a brawl in this restaurant that lasted for this witnesses said it lasted upwards of 45 minutes. Can you fucking imagine fighting a guy in like a restaurant for 45 minutes? Like Jesus I mean, Christ. Silas was a tough MF for himself that had a very, very long career. So, um, yeah, and, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, apparently this happened. Who's going to try to stop them too? There were, well, there was like multiple witnesses and shit, and they were said that they were going at it. And so then when apparently they were, they fought the first time, their quote unquote rematch was called the cafe rematch. That's amazing. Because it was a rematch of their brawl. But, you know, uh, yeah, Aragon had a bunch of famous things and moments. He was a star in Fat City, that movie. It was a really, one of the better boxing movies about uh, Stockton, who played a trainer in that movie uh man oh and uh against basilio just took an absolute fucking just whooping a lot of guys did against yeah basilio. I mean, that's not you necessarily know? saying anything but still took like, a whooping. you know like jake lamato was the type of guy that took a pretty boy like tony Gennaro or something and just mauled him and mangled him into a piece of meat basilio was the same guy you know once reti- once lamato retired basilio kind of took that role of just taking pretty boys like arrogant and just um demolishing them because that's what he did but art arrogant was a hell of a character man one of um boxing's best in terms of that but i want to go to another pretty boy from the same era who actually fought arrogant but was a complete opposite of the personality of arrogant every way conceivable and in that sense he was probably a dreamboat for the average housewife or you know tiny bopper of the of the 50s and that's chuck davy (laughs) <laughs> and even if you look at chuck davy and all that and you look and be like wait, pretty boy no no I, i'm not not in the sense of that but if you look at the time period what davy was what he represented it the whole clean cut image college graduate um ncaa champion in boxing when they used to have that still for in college and the whole nine yards and the whole time period that he came from yeah he was a media darling i'm sure those girls were swooning for him yeah, well, and and obviously uh, the style that he took too was a different kind of style. Well, oh, completely. <laughs> well, and I mean, I guess on some level, um, we've talked about this before, but the way that you know fighters generate power and stuff like that, you can know, if you don't have power, you don't have power. There's only so many ways you can generate power, and if you're like Paul Spatafore and you just don't have it, you just don't have it, <laughs> you know, and you wind up being more of a stylish kind of boxer or whatever, at least compared to a guy like Aragon, who was more uh, giving fans what they wanted a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah. Chuck Davey was a classic boxer. If you watch clips of him, you watch him and you're going to look at it and be like, what? Because it, it's not, it, when I say classic boxer, it's even amateur. His style is even amateur for the amateurs. You would say, right? 
he was very like on his feet, extremely on his feet. Just look, he looked like he was always slapping at you, you know, and nothing really looked hard. Like you said, he didn't really generate a lot of power, but the fighters were stymied by him. Um, there were rumors swindling. I mean, like he obviously he had a very, very good amateur career and he could fight. He wasn't no slouch. Like he had skill. It was just awkward the way he fought and then it and didn't look right, especially for that time period where guys didn't move like that. He stood out and his look stood out. He was young, but he looked older. He had a receding hairline, the whole freckle thing going on, really pale. It was, you know, he, he fit in well for the era. And since he was, since he was so clean cut and well-spoken and all that other stuff, college graduate, he was featured all the time on television. During the golden age, Gillette, fight, you know, um, television fights and all that. Davey was a mainstay for it. He kind of, but he did kind of have the, the like, uh, you know who I think he kind of looked like? He looked a little bit like Jimmy McLarnon. Okay, yeah. Like he kind of had that like, uh, well, they called J- Jimmy McLarnon was, I think, the original baby-faced assassin. And that's what they used to call him back in the day. I, there might have been somebody called that before him. I'm not saying he originated it, mm-hmm. but I think he was the original famous baby sa- baby-faced assassin because he was just a, you know, well, part of that was because he had started off, like, I think as a flyweight and was just a little guy, but he was just a fresh-faced, clean-cut, that clean-cut white boy, you know? And, and the same thing, Chuck Davey was just a, he did have a bit of a receding hairline, but just a strawberry blondish looking dude mm-hmm. with a nice smile, like a little kid smile type of thing, looked innocent, you know, I, I could see it. I could definitely see it, especially when I think in an era like we're like we've talked about several times in an era where you're expected to be tough. And if you're a fighter, you're you look tough. You got cauliflower ears, a bunch of scar tissue and shit like that. And he didn't really look like that. He didn't look anything like that. And the way he fought was the complete opposite of like, the you know, the brutes of that era or even like the classic boxers of that era because they didn't move like Davey. Davey looks stands out. So, you know, he, when he starts his career, he, he's off on a whirlwind. He's fighting, you know, not, you know, top guys, but like there, there's guys out there. If you look at his names, there's scattered ones. Um, for instance, he ends up fighting Ike Williams. Ike Williams is completely past it at this point. And there's questions that Ike Williams might have even thrown this fight. There was little questions about certain fights with Davey's career. Uh, Rocky Graziano, I think it was his last fight of his career. He fights Davey and he yeah. looks, he kind of sleep. And Ike Williams was kind of weird about certain portions of his career too, even totally. when we talked about him like decades later. So well, Williams was one of those guys that was mobbed up, even though he was one known as one of the greatest lightweight champions ever. It's and obvious. he probably was too, but even so, there was some he trouble. Would blinky there, sure. He would uh, blinky uh, uh, Palermo. Yeah, 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 for oh. sure. Yeah, for oh. sure. He was one of the main, like the mainstays because he, because he was good for yeah. sure but for instance like so there was always like rumblings going on over there like you know he um he fought carmen basilio twice first fight was a draw the second fight davy actually did look, look like legitimately beat him he beat chico uh the aforementioned chico Bahar twice and um he you know built himself up to a to a top contendership to fight kid gavlin for the welterweight champion for the welterweight championship Kid Gavlin at that point, uh, obviously another mainstay, a very popular fighter during the 50s and um, one of the most popular fighters of the 50s, gave Robinson absolute hell and obviously was the heir apparent once Robinson moved up. Um, that was going to be the litmus test. If Davey had won that, if Davey had somehow won that fight, um, you know, God knows how much he would have been more featured than that, man. Probably on every like television uh, station that you could have... Um, Every like 
every Jesus Christ, every TV show that you can imagine back then, he probably would have been on. You know, what's his name? This one, that one, God knows, you know, whatever else they were putting on, Davey would have been on that. You know what I mean? But yeah, instead, yeah. <laughs> poor television, you know, people, uh, the average housewife, everyone else watching boxing that night that was rooting for Davey witnessed an absolute massacre. <laughs> I mean, I could see Kid Gavilan, if Kid Gavilan had not just been ugly as sin, he could have been an idol. <laughs> you know, he, had a, he had a tremendous style. Uh, you know, really fun fighter, a pretty animated guy. He was cool. Yeah, man. Gavilan was just a fun, happy-go-lucky guy from Cuba that just, like, had the whole style. Of he just had a super goofy dance. look. That's all. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful. He just looked like a goofy guy. But uh, but a tremendous and he, and fighter. His, and his style was almost, like, you know, slightly unorthodox, too, for that. Like, you know what I mean? Just went to his own way and own style. But everything worked out perfectly, bro. But he just tremendous fighter one of the greatest of all time and i mean class show that great welterweight yeah. absolute daylights out of Davey. it was a massacre great great welterweight and you know uh that fight happened in chicago stadium and on top of that chuck davy generally fought when he fought out of detroit he was from somewhere else in michigan but he fought out of detroit and uh there were at least two venues in detroit and it might have been all of them I'm not positive. I'd have to look. I'm just kind of going off memory, but I, I mentioned this recently in uh, on some other show. Can't remember which show when we were talking about the International Boxing Club of New York and how uh, one of the writers at the time had nicknamed him Tentacles Inc. And one of the rings and Tentacles Incorporated. That is one of the reasons being that they had control of so many cities and venues, mm -hmm. and Detroit was one of them. Detroit was one of the cities where the International Boxing Club of New York's mob influence had extended to both Chicago and Detroit. They hadn't really gone a whole lot past there because it's kind of like you think about New York as a hub and then, you know, you spread down from there on the map. And it's like the more you spread out, the thinner you get, you know, if New York is your hub. So anyway, from that perspective, it makes sense. But Detroit was one of the cities where they were constantly involved and chuck davy was always fighting out of detroit so of course he was coming into contact with not just the fighters but i'm sure a lot of the actual players when it came to the mob influence in the sport of boxing at this time because they were all up in the welterweight and middleweight divisions no question totally man i'm sure people met with him and there was some rumblings going on but it it, it makes you wonder because if you the the graziano fights on youtube and Graziano is past it, but it is kind of interesting to watch a guy who was just always overly aggressive, just kind of sleepwalk through 10 rounds. It's not a very exciting fight. Well, Davey just kind of dances around and jabs him to death. Um, uh, Carmen Basilio, I believe, always said that he had fit, you know, he believed everything was really fishy, I think, in the first fight or some other stuff that he couldn't get a decision on. Um, the rematch, like I said, I think Davey, by all accounts, clearly won it, but like, it just there, there was always questions going on there, especially when you build up a gaudy record like that. And you're in an era where it's pretty difficult to build up a record like that. And you're always featured on television, obviously very favored. You have a peculiar style. People are going to, you know, lay into question and rightfully so. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of fighters. There's so much. Um, so much lost footage. From the 1950s where yeah. fights would be on every week. And it's like fighters, like I've, I mentioned this not, uh, not super long ago, 
but long story short, I, I've been saying for years, I wish I had some boxing connection in my family. And then a couple of years ago, I even said on the show, it turned out that I did. It was just that I didn't find out about it until, you know, way, way later in life. My mom's uncle used to be army friends with Joe Maselli. Oh, and yes. The only, and the only reason why I bring that up is just to tie it to directly what I just said, where there's so many fights in the 1950s in particular that are basically just forgotten. Or these kinds yeah, of regular, a lot of them, man. yeah. We we did a show about this too, but these regular TV fighters that are basically just forgotten about at this point. Joe Maselli was one of them. He was considered a TV star, and you bring that name up to even some boxing historians, they're like, "Who Mahuli? What the fuck? What are you talking about?" And but that's what I'm saying. You know, like there's these guys were regular household names at during this era. I met him and, actually too at the Hall of Fame. I met him my first year at the Hall of Fame. That I didn't know. I, that doesn't surprise me, though, because I know he was from uh, from that area. Yeah, he showed up. I got to meet him. I took a photo with him, got his autograph, everything. Actually, the gloves back there, um, he signed them. Tough, tough fighter, dude. Very, Very tough, tough fighter. Man. If you look at his record, too, another one, oh, he couldn't have been that good. Look at his record. No, look at who he fought. Yeah, right? exactly. Look at who he fought. <laughs> look at who he fought. All right, it was so hard to become a world champion back then. And look at who he fought and then see the wins that he has too because he did not beat a bunch of scrub bums, all right? He beat world champions. He beat top contenders. Yep. Just, you know what I mean? They beat yeah. him more than they beat him, than he beat them. But trust me, he was a bad mamma jammer. Right? He could fight. <laughs> yeah, he and he was on TV regularly. He served Ralph in the Tiger Army. Jones, all those type of guys, man. They're always featured on television. Yeah. So, I mean, it, just to kind of illustrate that, you know, there are so many of these fighters that are basically just forgotten about at this time and, you know, were just household names totally. back then. But Gavilan complete, but back to Davey really quick, man, Gavilan completely ruined him. Um, he, after that fight, you know, Davey, not Davey, yeah, Davey was literally never the same, man. If we mentioned our arrogant ended up beating him. Um, a guy named Al Andrews beat him twice. Vince Martinez who I guess you can, can uh, consider another pretty boy of the era. Um, he was he was a good-looking dude who a lot of people were talking about. He was a popular uh, contender during that weird era. Um, absolutely ravaged Davey for a knockout loss. So, you know. And, yeah. he, and, he, had a t and he had a tough afterlife too, man. Like, I know he, he was successful after his career ended for a while, but then I believe he had a swimming accident. I read, I read about yeah. that because I was, yeah. For the That's show, right. I read about that and was like, yeah, I didn't know that. Holy shit. Accident. Um, Brutal. I think I read about that in Burr Sugar's fight game, actually. Remember the fight game magazine from the late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. So he yeah, he had a swimming accident. I think he was diving or something like that. And he ended up like he was paralyzed from the neck down, right? That's the type of, I had a pool when I was a kid. That was exactly the type of shit that my mom was like, don't dive into the shallow end. Always not, yeah. The shit like that will happen, man. I mean, Fuck. look what happened to poor Zora Foley. Well, I don't know if uh, he... Well, who knows what happened to poor Zora Foley. Yeah, there, there's so many questions that. But I mean, just like he died though banging his head off of the off a pool, right? Story goes. Yeah, so, that was what their story was saying. So, I mean, it just like, it, it is dangerous, but I mean, like, yeah, poor, poor guy, like, especially because he wasn't young when he did that. I think he was already like as, an, as, you know, late middle age, early elderly age or whatever. So, yeah. But yeah, that's rough, man. He does. But I mean, all in all, he does hold a place for this, for this conversation. Definitely.
and especially for the time period. On the heels of Chuck Davy, dude, we're going to fast forward a little bit, fast forward a couple decades, not too many decades, but got a schoolboy to talk about, Mr. Bobby Chacon. Yes, sir. Hurry home, hurry Every. home, boom, boom, Mancini's fighting Bobby Chacon. Every, every time I bring up Bobby Chacon, somebody brings up that Warren Zevon song, too, to the point where I have to be like, yes, I know there's a song that mentions Bobby Chacon, y'all. It's okay. But it's interesting, Bobby, too, that of all fights to mention, but I mean, I guess it rhymes. So, yeah, I, I think it just fit the rhyme scheme perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, also, you know, I think that it's funny because it's like, I guess it depends on who you ask. I think if you ask Southern Californians, they love Bobby Chacon. Um, I mean, especially I think a lot of people who wound up seeing him live, really exciting fighter, but one of those fighters that was like right there, you know, like he, he won the, he won a title, but it was like, not, he couldn't quite get like over the hump, you know, he couldn't quite yeah. just get, he was, came super close, but at least in terms of entertainment top fucking notch dude definitely one of the better careers to watch entertainment wise incredible but he was also a guy that you know he definitely burned the candles at both ends early on in his career and that's what yeah. really pushed him up man like he he shot out like a rocket bro i mean like you couldn't touch him especially when he met up undefeated and defeated against danny little red lopez and scored that knockout i mean sky was the limit for him bro everybody thought you yeah, dude you know, there's there's so many ups and downs in his career and life. Just totally, uh, totally. But in the beginning of it, man, they thought he was he was he was shot on a rocket. And oh, then yeah. when he beat when he beat um Alfredo uh Alfredo Marcano or was it right for the uh for the title? You know, no one no one could have said anything. But like the the fame that he got from that, I mean, he was already big and super popular. We've discussed before how LA how the West Coast boxing scene, especially in LA area really takes to their hometown heroes, even if they're not champions or before they become champions. And Chacon was no different, man. He was already in Matinee Island, a star before that. So when he became champion, that was just like the exclamation point. But I don't think anybody could have predicted what was going to happen to him, which was get, which was um, when he fought Ruben Olivares. I mean, yeah. like, Olivares is an all-time great fighter, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it looked like the careers were going in different directions when they came up. And... Yeah, he, uh, you know, he just had a Chacon just kind of looked like a goofy kid, which is why they called him schoolboy. Yeah, kind of had that f funny haircut early on, you know, but in, in just 1973 alone, uh, I mean, maybe at least one of these fighters might not be familiar to anybody who isn't like a history buff already. But uh, Turi Pineda, who was yes. a mainstay at the Olympic, very popular at the Olympic man, a guy that never really made it to the heights, but he did fight for a world title and just. Yep. Usually George, lost to all the other guys, but a tough guy. One of George Parnass's uh, uh, favorites, promoter George Parnassus, one of the guys that he went to a number of times. And then in the same year, he beat Turi Pineda, Frankie Crawford, who was another a crowd favorite around that time, and Chucho Castillo, who most people are going to know then. But that oh, was yeah. in one year. You know, that's, that's a pretty impressive year for a young fighter. That's a <laughs> very good year. This is a pretty wild photo. I'm recalling off the top of my head when he fought Pineda, where it shows the contrast in styles. Pineda is completely wide open. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? And Chacon just popping him with a punch, and Pineda is just, ugh, just taking it with his arms completely stretched. Like, 
and, and Pineda himself also looked like a small child. Like he yeah. just had that baby face. <laughs> so did. it was he like was two really little young. kids fighting, you know? But yeah, he just, uh, he was a, a goofy looking kid too. But, but yeah, um, no, these were all, but again, like uh, Pineda at that point had only one loss. Crawford was already a mainstay at, at you know, and Castillo was past the past. Yeah, he court. was obviously a veteran, but a but uh, very well known. So these veteran. were yeah, no man. Chacon built his way up there, like we said when he fought Danny Lopez, future all time you know um, great featherweight champion, Hall of Famer himself. That was a huge, huge crosstown fight right there at the Olymp, you know, at um in L.A. People were clamoring for that because Lopez, Indian Lopez's little brother, Ernie Lopez's little brother. I mean, built himself up a superstar now, and then. Um, fighting Chacon. <laughs> Imagine if that fight was happening today, bro. Like people would be going bananas for that. A lot of people forget it was Chacon who took his O. Yeah, totally. And dominated, man. Chacon was at his peak right there, and he looked beautiful in that fight. He was brilliant. Yeah, those those three uh wins that I was talking about earlier led directly to his first fight with Olivares, and he lost that fight. But I mean, you know, there's no shame. Like it's, you know, uh, you lose uh, Ruben Olivares. There's one of the Mexican greats, a guy who's probably uh, even underrated in that department because you talk about the Mexican greats and, you know, he's generally not mentioned among the top handful. Um, but even so, uh, like you said, he wound up losing. Uh, well, he beat uh, Danny Lopez, took his O, and then lost a rematch to Olivares when a lot of people were like, okay, well, this is the chance for the young kid to bounce back, but then lost it even worse. And even sooner wound up getting knocked out in second round. Um, but then it was, I don't know, a couple of years later in 77, I think when he actually wound up defeating and getting revenge over Olivares, finally, Olivares, I guess had gotten old enough for him to beat, but no, nah, I mean, Olivares was still, he was still viable, but obviously, uh, getting somewhat worn but Olivares himself was super popular in the southern california uh, uh mexican-american community and mexican community and also really popular in mexico he's his popularity gets downplayed just don't want it to get swept under the rug but going two one and one with bazooka limon uh losing to was, Alexis. he was struggling in a lot of, like every time he would beat a lot of contenders build himself up back to a title fight but even yeah. in some of those fights, that's what I mean is he couldn't quite get over that hump. He just couldn't. And, and, yeah. and a lot, and he was always taking and like his, his style was changing from being like, you know, the real, like the really slick, fast speedster that he was early on to like becoming more of a brawler. Like he always, you know, never what it then he was never like a defensive whiz, but he definitely started becoming the more so like going in there and taking more to earn more and that type of deal. And he was taking punishment in these fights, even in fights that he would be winning. Like if, for instance, I've never seen it, but I read about it. His fight with um, David uh, Sotelo. They they said that was an out-and-out out brawl that Chacon took a ton of punishment in before he ended up, you know, winning that fight. And that, you know, Shig Fukuyama was another guy that always gave everybody hell. There's that famous photo of him bloodying the crap out of Sean O'Grady. Um, you know, these were guys, like, these were tough fights. And Chacon's wife, he was married to a beautiful girl named Valerie. And she was clamoring just begging him all the time for years since the mid 70s probably since around the Olivares fights that like please stop fighting stop fighting i don't you know you don't need this anymore there's so many other things you can do it was it was after the uh sorry to interrupt you but it was oh, after the boza edwards fight the first, the first boza edwards fight where she really like started like really demanding because right? it was a brutal just both of them were absolute yeah. fucking wars 
and she wanted and him to stop. That, he, had, uh, he had got stopped against Arguello in a fight that he was actually really competitive and maybe winning. it. But like, yeah, she was believing he was never going to get over that hump. And Chacon was already a thing of the past at that point. Look how long he had been around. Right? You know, he was still young, but he had fought for so long. It's the early 80s. He almost seems out of place now because it's the early 80s. Like he seems like caught in a place in the mid 70s with bell bottoms and discos and, you know, uh, what was Mod Squad, for instance. All right. Really mm-hmm. throw a reference out there, like stuff like that. Right. But like, you know, so him being in the 80s and almost like you're just kind of like, wait, this isn't, you know, it's not going to work. And it didn't at first. And like you said, after the Boza Edwards fight, who Edwards was a hell of a fighter too, that kind of underrated um, to a degree, um, stopped him. His wife soon enough couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, a little while after that, when Chacon scheduled yet another fight, she killed herself. Um, very, very tragic. You know what I mean? I think when she took a shotgun and just took herself out, right? I don't know and, what kind of gun it was, but yeah, it was a gun. Yeah. And then afterwards, I think it was the very next day or that night or the next day, Chacon actually fought, didn't he? Yeah, it was, it was, I don't remember the time frame, but it was something like that. It was something yeah. like very soon afterwards. Right after that, which is. And he incredible. said he was like numb, like he was just like. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's, I can't even imagine. But after that, like, that's when, you know, the, his, his whole turnaround started. Like, for whatever reason, he took that motivation of losing his wife and just like fueled it to win another title because they always said he wanted to do that for Valerie. And after a string of wins, including another um, a revenge win over a tough guy named Arturo Leon, um, he ends up fighting his arch rival, Bazooka Limon, and uh, for their fourth and final time. This is the fight that, like, it's one of my all-time favorite fights. I know it's one of yours. It's, anyone who's watched it will tell you it's one of, the, one of their favorite fights ever. It's, that fight is like a Rocky film come to life. Some people, like, I, I, I guess it kind of varies by your age. Maybe not, kind of probably just by personal preference, but I know a lot of people who are kind of like around our age and younger mm-hmm. generally say Corrales Castillo won. I get that. Totally. No problem. Yeah, no, no, no. No argument. But I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people who would who say no. It's, you know, Chacon Limon 4, Limon Chacon 4, that that's the best fight that they've yeah. ever seen. No argument. It's one of the best fights ever, for sure. And it, the ebbs and flows of it, like Lamone was never going to be known as a fancy Dan. He was a caveman in there. I mean, he had a weird style that worked effectively for him, but he was nothing. You know, he 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 was he was who he was. He was a crude dad that came in and clubbed you down, and he was clubbing the shit out of Chacon. Unless you were Charmbay Mitchell, in which case he tried to pull down your fucking trunks <laughs> mid fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The fact that he was fighting in 1990 was a travesty in itself. So, yeah, no sure. um, but like he, uh, the ebbs and flows of it. I mean, like if you watch, the, if you listen to this show, I'm, the, I'm pretty sure that you've watched the fight. If you haven't, do yourself a favor and give yourself an hour and a half and just sit down and watch it because it's absolutely incredible. The way they go back and forth. You got Lamone beating the hell out of Chacon. You got Chacon rallying back with right hand after right hand, which he seemingly couldn't miss from Lamone. Um, Lamone drops Chacon. Chacon wobbles Lamone. It's it's backs and forth. And somehow going into the very last round, it's basically almost even or to the point where like Chacon just needs to score a knockdown. He needs to do something big here to score this win. Like that's how close it is. Like it's just 
and they both knew it. And then at the very end of the fight, there's like 15 seconds left or whatever, and Chacon just comes and lands a right hand. Lamone has, has nothing left on him. Guy's tough as, excuse me, guy is tough as nails, but he's just splayed out from that one shot. Wobbles back, and Chacon runs in and lands the second right hand. And that's when Lamone just lays out, like, out, you know? He pulls it's, himself it's off like, the canvas, but it's so dramatic. And awesome. It's like the, yeah, it's the, it's like the last second, like he needed it. And, and somehow not, he got, but it's not only that it's like, you know, you can almost start like tearing up talking about, it, cause it's like the culmination of his fucking of life. Yeah. Like it's his entire life put into this round. Yes, totally. It's, That's it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And it's like, so yeah, like you go from him being this idol, this young idol in the early 1970s in a very busy and entertaining and popular division in an extremely entertaining part of the country as far as boxing goes, you know, couldn't be a better situation for him. And he just, he gave everything he had brain-wise, you know, he, but another part of this too, that we kind of uh, neglected to mention along the way was that he had also turned to alcohol and drugs too, uh, you know, and he, so he had had a lot of personal issues and around the time uh, that his, his wife committed suicide, he was having promotional issues on and off, which, you know, likely story for any fighter, but he was having promotional issues with Don King. No surprise there. Mm. Like any fighter in the 1980s ever did, you know? So there were a lot of a lot of up and ups and downs in his career. Uh, and that fourth fight was really just kind of like maybe we didn't know it quite a, they didn't know it at the time, but that was really like the pinnacle. That was really the that was what he had. And mm -hmm. then from there to Mancini, and he even had a pretty decent run after that, too. He beat Freddie oh, he Rose. Did, man. He ended up he ended up fighting um Boza Edwards in a rematch, which was another fight of the year. Like Chacon had that second run. Once he beat Lamone in that in that fight, like everybody was just like, you know, oh my God. Like that was that was it. He became because you said, man, the story behind it, the reclamation, he finally came back, the finish, how great the fight was. You couldn't beat it, man. Ch Lamone was not Lamone, excuse me. Chacon was like a star again. And then he goes and he fights Boza Edwards in there in the second fight and puts on another absolute clinic. Like that was the 83 fight of the year. So back to back, he has fights of the year. 1982 fight might have been the fight of the decade and then he beats Boza Edwards in the 83 fight of the year so when he fights Mancini in 84 yes everybody is very very excited I mean like it's you, you can't beat something like that man like you know Chacon is the ultimate action star now and he has all the momentum Mancini is the big matinee island the pretty boy of the time and really really popular in all action everyone thought this was going to be explosive they thought it was going to be an amazing fight and you know not so much yeah it was two guys going two different directions definitely a crossroads type of fight um well i mean it wasn't like mancini was uh like young and fresh per se but he was definitely in a different part of his career than chacon was at the time absolutely and, and he was a lot bigger too chacon bigger, was like heavier punching yeah just a different fighter at that time and you you add into that the wear and tear that Chacon had had Chacon had absolutely he just hadn't he had no more dude he and I mean like I said he still put a couple good wins together after oh, that he it's did, not like man. he was done he beat Freddie Roach and he beat Art Frias who was a but he never got that momentum going on like he had and at that point like you mentioned too he had he had fallen into drugs and alcohol and a lot of stuff with his career um his post-fight career was really sad you know he had a lot of issues i know he lost unfortunately his, um 
one of his kids was murdered in a gang uh in a gang shootout or something um he suffered from brain damage dementia later on yeah uh, even, i will say go ahead even um oh gosh who was it uh i'd have to look at the dude's name because I, I clicked it but i think it was rafael solis um they had said that after that fight that during his post-fight interview that a bunch of the reporters were like dude he's slurring real bad and he even won he won the fight but was like sounding bad and that not long after that that he had been convinced that he needed to get out but that not long after he retired he started using crack Mm -hmm. yeah and i know he fell in and out he was like homeless for a few times other stuff went on with him but you know, people in the boxing community, other people rallied and tried to get him together. And, he, you know, he did, even though it was sad what happened to him and like in terms of his, his, his mind and other stuff, like kind of deteriorating, um, he didn't live out like, you know, completely just out off his wits end. He did make it to the Hall of Fame when he got inducted. And um, even though you can tell he was out of it, like he was very, very happy-go-lucky. He was bouncing around. He was kissing people, taking photos with everybody. He was dancing smiling like you couldn't tell him like he was the happiest guy on the planet absolute happiest guy it was a joy to be around him actually yeah he was he's definitely uh still kind of like a beloved figure as far as being you know especially southern california figure as he should no be question. you know he should be remembered fondly he was a great fighter great fighter he would be totally. huge today huge today if he was around yeah but definitely speaking of another pretty boy from that era actually you know we're just going to shift gears a little bit go from the west coast to the midwest so, I already know who. Go ahead. Bubblegum Sean. Sean <laughs> yep, the bubblegum kid or yeah. whatever variation on the bubblegum. Exactly. Yeah. Someone who might have turned pro. God, when did he turn pro? What was he? I want to say 15. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say around that age, right? I think 15. But, um, <laughs> you know, he could probably, he and his family could be like their own show. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Pat O'Grady. Irish Pat O'Grady, man. Um, Sean O'Grady coming from a boxing family and I guess kind of a quintessential Irish Roman Catholic strict or stern, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, violent family from most uh, descriptions where dad was angry and basically took that anger out on the kids in the boxing gym. Um, and I mean, I, I think that you see, we saw this, a similar career trajectory with Freddie Roach, actually coming from a family that was a boxing family yeah. with a really hard charging fucking dad that Amazing. was like, you were playing totally. yeah, like you, you remember playing little league and there was always that one father in the stands that was like, fuck him up, Tommy. And everybody's looking up, like, <laughs> bro, they're fucking seven. <laughs> Like, you know, always like, one. that was those. Yeah. You know, there's like sitting in the stands. You're like, I remember like, like, oh, like you having a, school, oh, yeah, having yeah, a soda? No, I just had a flashback, a man. I just had a flashback. Do you remember this fighter recently from the, I'm sure you do. Ryan Kielzeki. Ryan Kielzeki. That sounds super Polish familiar. Prince was his name. He was, he, he never, uh, he fought on ESPN and a couple other cars. He that never sounds was, like, super familiar. Leader. Yeah. But so he's from Massachusetts. All right. And I remember him when he was a little, cause I'm older than him. I remember him when he was a little kid and when he was like first at the junior Olympics, bro, he used to have his dad there in the same thing. His dad would be sitting next to everybody and blow. Like, like 
his like you make like I'm telling you the decibel levels that he would start screaming because he was a big guy. Call him Ryan. Call him. Call him, call him now. Like these kids were seven years old, bro. And they're just like kind of, you know, they're going through it. No, give us that jab. Right, hang him. I don't want the apricot. He one time he started. You hear like a, you look over and he's like just pounding a beer. You're like, you brought I mean, another no, fucking little dude. What the time. fuck are you he doing? Over there. He was like, I'm like, what the? Jeez, like it's a game. It's a sport, sir. I know, bro, Settle man. It was down. wild. Everyone used to run away from him because he would just be a central figure. No, 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 no. But. Yes. Yeah, like you didn't know there might he might he may or may not pick a fight with one of the teenage players after the game. Who knows? Absolutely. Maybe not. Who knows? My but, friends you know. actually beat up a. Fo- they said they did that. They're my football team, and uh, I wasn't on the team. But and New Bedford High School, my friends told me how they beat up a dad after the school after a game one time because he got all loud with them. They said they walked up. My buddy Bunny punched him in the head, dropped him, and the rest of them stomped him out. <laughs> I won't name names because I know this guy now. But when yeah. I was a kid. His dad, my older brother and his older brother were on the same soccer team. And after the game, his dad almost got into a fight with one of the players on the other team who was like 15 at the time because he thought they were being too rough. (laughs) Anyway, imagine all of these psychotic fathers we're talking about. And that's that's Pat O'Grady. That's, uh, you know, just somebody who's overbearing, Obviously, Sean boxing at six years old. At six years old, you don't yeah, even know. What obviously, living talking. out some fantasy of his own through his totally. children. That quintessentially, yeah, sad shit, bro. Sad, sad shit. So yeah, Sean O'Grady starts boxing as an amateur at six years old, and in 1975, while he's probably, I, I want to say, he was like still like a sophomore in high school or so, he turns pro and starts hitting the Midwest circuit, which was even more skeezy and slummy and questionable in the 70s compared to what it still is today so yeah, um, if, you, if you think the regulation now is bad imagine what it was you know too bad we don't have our buddy gray on the show gray johnson on the show today oh to talk my about god this. dude he could <laughs> probably yeah he could probably name the, names and the inroads of what went down in yeah. the 70s of the midwest when you fought at the red carpet inn in oklahoma city on the memphis blues ballpark for instance <laughs> <You know? laughs> so those were, those were the O'Grady stomping grounds of the mid seventies. Anyways. Um, yeah. He built his up record on, you know, on the Chitlin circuit, just beating up a bunch of debutants and guys with shim sham records, probably with fake names and all that until randomly out of the blue, very quizzically in 1976, um, only a year after turning pro, don't get me wrong. He fought a lot in that first year. Um, he gets matched against the aforementioned Danny Littlebird Lopez. And what happened there, Pat? Oh, man. Well, I mean, <laughs> one of the issues with Freddie Roach with, and specifically also Sean O'Grady, his skin. His yeah. skin. And it became a recurring issue. You could see it now. Uh, he actually, he still speaks very well. He doesn't look so bad, but you could see the scar tissue. He got tissue. the game very young, too. And yeah, well, thankfully, because he would have, if he would have stayed in, that just would have been such bad news. But, um, but, you know, overall, he looks fairly fresh-faced, but you can still see some scar tissue from where he's probably had to get, like, plastic surgery and shit like that. Yeah. But, dude, that's just, that was, like, his calling card. It was if he wasn't fighting a scrub, his face was falling apart, unfortunately. But, you know, it's it's tough to, uh, this was a competitive kind of, uh, the featherweight and lightweight divisions in the 70s and 80s, highly competitive, 
why he was put in against little red Lopez and that mm. with that few fights, I have no idea. Awful idea, but that's also became a recurring theme with Sean O'Grady's uh, career and his father's decision-making ability. But there was rumors I've read. I've read in a couple of things. There was like rumors saying that O'Grady was getting too big for his britches maybe and that his father wanted to humble him. So he put him in with somebody he knew he was going to be overmatched with. But here's the thing. There's no footage of this fight. There's no video footage. This has been like a holy grail for boxing fans, for, um, for tape collectors for years. Lee Groves will tell you a lot of other people. There's, again, rumors of why there's no footage of this fight. There's various things where they said that the O'Grady family had it and they destroyed it or so-and-so just wasn't filmed. Whatever it may be, I don't, I don't know. But there's, there's no footage that's ever come up of it. We've just seen photos. And it's clearly man against boy. Like, Lopez was in his 20s at this point, too, but he, was, he looks decades older than O'Grady, who's 18 and looks like a baby. I mean, he already looked baby-faced as it is, but he's, he's in high school. Yeah, Danny Lopez was one of those dudes who, like, had a full mustache, like, in, when yeah, he was a senior man, in high school. Old, you know yeah, what I'm saying? The, the hair, the everything, he just looked old. <laughs> you know, he looked like a guy from the 70s. Just like a tough, rugged guy that, you know, looked you know, decades older than what he was. O'Grady was the opposite. I've heard I've heard stories, not this fight per se, but I've heard stories about other fights uh, where the footage was stolen by really? like by rival promoters and shit like that. But anyway, I'm not going to start with that rumor. I'm just saying I've heard things like that happening. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, dude, to be put in against Little Red Lopez, just not a good idea. He was the, Danny Lopez was the kind of guy who obviously could be beaten. And had a lot of flaws, but if you were not, if you were not about that life, dude, Danny Little Red Lopez was going to let you know. And the same thing, if you read it, if you read what happened, they said that O'Grady, by his account, he said he got a little too greedy in the fight. In the first round, he employed a hit and run tactic, and Lopez is one of the slowest starters in boxing history. So it wouldn't be difficult to win the first round against him. But once he got into gear and once he started moving his arms, you know, that's when the curtains would be called. And inevitably, that's what happened to O'Grady. I think it was, um, they said, you know, a series of punches. He just got overwhelmed. He was a kid. He had no business being in there with him. But the potential was there. Even though he got beat up, he got stopped. Even Lopez said afterwards, give him a few years. He's going to be a great fighter one day. And he went back on the circuit. Same thing. Went back to the red carpet inn. Went back to St. Albert High School, Council City Bluffs, Iowa, the Fairgrounds International Building. Places like that. You know what I mean? A bunch of cream puffs and stale guys and other random bums. But around the way too they, he would always have like a little name thrown in there um for instance uh shig fukuyama who we talked about a japanese fighter who was a french contender of uh, the featherweight division during the time and fought a who's who of everybody there's a famous photo of o'grady his face completely gored looked like rick flair in a, after a steel's cage match against bruiser brody like just yeah, that's a super bloody fight and you in a fight like that today, there was no way in hell that fight would be would be let go today. Like O'Grady, I know I have that, but okay. I think it might I think it might have gotten deleted. I might be, or at least the the copy that I had got deleted off YouTube. But it, it okay. Hopefully, it's up. I want it to be up. Yeah, man, it's a pretty exciting fight, especially when you see how gory it gets. But finally, as O'Grady starts maturing and he enters his early twenties, that's when he finally starts like you know fighting top like tough competition. And it shows to his, to his credit, to his credit, you know, even though he fought in like 
his record was padded with a lot of guys. He did show his potential because when he did step up, it wasn't like he got blasted out like a lot of guys usually tend to do That's when right, they yeah. in records. He didn't do that. He ends up fighting Arturo Leon, who was a very tough contender during that time and wins the USBA title, makes a couple of defenses of that belt. And, you know, at that point, maintains like, you know, against decent fighters, Gonzalo Montatalo. And then that's when he fights in a very controversial fight. He defend, he um, ends up challenging for his first world title fight in 1980 against WBC lightweight champion Jim Watt in Scotland. Yep. Scottish okay. dude, Jim Watt, um, you know, oh man poor Sean if you're familiar with Jim Watts because you heard of his commentary over the years on what was it like Sky and stuff I think so yeah 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 he's he's a fairly uh I guess popular or at least known player among the the UK production stuff and contemporary mm -hmm. boxing from a couple of years ago um but also a pretty good fighter too no question very good lightweight uh definitely one of the better Scottish fighters of all time for sure um, and a tough guy too, man. I mean, he he came up in an era like post Duran, where the lightweight division was kind of open. A very rough era too. Even though Duran was gone, there was still a lot of very very tough, tough, tough fighters. Um, and Watt, to his credit, who wasn't considered much and probably was a little past it when he finally won his belt because he had been around the block for a while, um, put himself put himself together a decent little run. Like he fought O'Grady. He um, he was the first one to beat Howard Davis Jr. in a fight he wasn't expected to win. And he made a few other defenses too before um, he lost to Alexis Arguello, which was obviously no shame in that. But when Sean O'Grady ends up fighting Jim Watt, um, controversy arose because it was a fight that O'Grady was winning by all accounts. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's a, it was a tough fight, close fight. But like yeah, one that O'Grady walked into fucked up so bad, dude, so badly. And it's a fight that they said there was already a lot of tension walking in because O'Grady. Um, I think he's like Catholic or Protestant or something he said he was, but wherever they were heading, they said that they had a lot of threats, like Scottish people were threatening, you know, the families, um, Pat O'Grady was saying that they were getting death threats and other threats and all this stuff. And there was a lot of tension. It was just a scary place to be out there. It was just a lot going on. But when the fight was going on, O'Grady was fighting his ass off. It was a good fight, but O'Grady, you know, he's a tough kid. He's, he's winning. But like you said, dude, he gets headbutted. And he gets headbutted so bad. And it's just like a jagged cut that just like, and it starts the beginning of the end. And you know, out there, they're not going to take it. They're not going to take care of him. It's not like he's going to go to the scorecards. So he gets butted, you know, at this point, it becomes a really bad affair. O'Grady, like you said, his face falls apart and he gets stopped controversially. He still looks like a young kid at this point. You know, like yes. he still looks like a little guy. And his, the uh, cut is like kind of toward the inner part of his eyebrow up his head up his forehead man definitely one of the worst cuts you'll see because it's in just such a bad spot and uh you know he's been cut several times before by this point like we're he's used to being cut he's been cut before but just a really bad cut in a really bad situation the worst time in the worst possible place where there's going to be no mercy shown you know and totally. there wasn't so i mean i think that that was kind of considered the like last hurrah, you know, I mean, despite the fact that he was like 22 or 23 at the time, he's still young, but it was like, you know, how much more could this, how much more, how many more times could this kid get propped up with scrubs and then get propelled to like a title fight or somebody, something like a title fight, 
you know, how many times can this happen? Despite the fact that he's still young, like this can't keep happening because he's just who knows what kind of punishment he was taking in the gym too. Man. Oh God, man. Imagine the sparring that he was going on. Not just with like, cause I'm sure O'Grady, O'Grady uh, Pat O'Grady had him sparring with just an assortment of different bruisers and lug wrenches and just other Monty masters. And that yeah, big probably that, you know. sparring dudes who were like, you know, light heavyweights and shit. Totally. Like that, just, anything goes over when, you know, and, and that, and that land. But to his credit, after one win, he ends up fighting Hilmer Kenty. And Hilmer Kenty at that point, we talked about him in the past episodes, Kronk's first world champion. At that point, 20-0, and 0, um, he became, you know, just a star, a rising star in the division. And most people thought a rising star in boxing overall. And um, O'Grady was, you know, even though he was, like, very popular, he was brought in as the opponent for that fight. He wasn't expected to be Kenty. Kenty yeah. was on the highest, not O'Grady. And O'Grady put on a beautiful performance, bro. He just outboxed Kenty, dropped him, just out everything to him. Kenty couldn't get going, and O'Grady whooped him for a full 15 rounds. It wasn't even really that close. You know, that was a classic performance. Yeah, that was definitely, that definitely uh, was probably, well, it was unexpected, no question, oh. especially with the career trajectory of Hilmer Kenty at the time being Kronk's first world champion exactly. and then Kronk obviously picking up a lot of momentum right around the early 1980s because it was uh Hilmer Kenty and then fairly quick succession after that Tommy Hearns, Tommy Hearns came and he, I'm pretty sure that was a Joe Louis arena that he won that yes. too at Detroit yep. um but I mean like already it was like damn you know Kronk's the fucking this is the new shit in town right now you know Kronk's exactly. kicking up but then Sean O'Grady stepped in and put on pretty much the performance of a lifetime at that point. And I think in retrospect, we're able to kind of put it in perspective, like that Hilmer Kenty obviously was not that good overall, yes. mm -hmm. but nonetheless, you know, and no, it was still, it was still considered, no, it was a very surprising win. And little Grady being, you know, young and popular and good looking and scoring a big win like that, you know, he got, there was a lot of talk. Everyone was excited. Oh man, let's put over, you know, can O'Grady uh, fight Arguello? Can O'Grady fight this guy, that guy? Like there was so many possibilities of who they wanted to match him up with. There was a, um, a world boxing magazine that my parents bought me at some trade fair or some shit. I don't know, but it was like from that era and they were talking about Sean O'Grady and they had him and they interviewed him for the magazine. They listed all the opponents, potential opponents that he could fight. And he was going through each of them and talking about how he would beat them like Howard Davis and this one and that one and how exciting it would be to fight them and the potential of him fighting these guys. But that wasn't meant to be, man, you know, because I think the O'Grady's were looking for a big cash out after that fight. And instead, the WBA um, wanted him to fight their number one contender, which was a fighter by the name of Claude Noel. Claude Noel wasn't a bad fighter at all, a longtime contender himself, but he wasn't a household name and a guy that wasn't going to command a lot of money or, you know, notoriety. The O'Grady's were looking for something bigger than that. So WBA, who in that, you know, being that they are, they stripped him. <laughs> and this is where things get interesting because after they strip him, um, Pat O'Grady decided in his infinite wisdom, well, we don't need a sanctioned body. We'll create our own. <laughs> and thus became the WAA. The World Athletic Association. Yes. With two world champions, Sean and at heavyweight, um, the, uh, the dad's um, son, son yeah, his brother-in-law, Sean's brother-in-law. Well, yeah, Sean, Sean's brother-in-law, Monty Masters. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like so. Cr 
crackpot-ish, bro. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's like some shit that you could totally see like Angel Garcia doing, you know, <laughs> like Ruben Guerrero or something. And then the funniest thing is that it completely- first, first bring a gun into New York and then create a fucking organization. Go ahead. And then the funniest thing about it, bro, is that it blows up in their face completely because the first WBA, WA. Yeah, they got that Hawaiian punch on their ass. Yeah, yeah. They fight Andy Gannigan, who's one of the most dangerous fighters of the era and just an absolute nightmare as for a style. And, you know, predictably, you know, he got splattered. I think he was supposed to fight Howard Davis. Davis pulled out and Gannigan came in as a late as a late replacement. Gannigan was dangerous as shit. He was a puncher. He he was a he was a guy with a kind of funky delivery, not super orthodox, very fast, thudding puncher and would surprise the shit out of you and did Sean O'Grady. And you know, that was another guy who it's unfortunately not quite enough to do its own like big true crime episode, but like he, he met a super sad end. He, he, Andy Gannigan, that is, he got beaten up uh, by like, it was like some like bar goer or something like that, just randomly. And he wound up dying from his injuries. Like kind of like Don Jordan, just terrible shit, yeah, dude. Yeah. Just crazy yeah. shit. But anyway, in his prime, yeah. Gannigan was a fun fighter. He didn't have a, and what made him even better too, is that he, he didn't have a great chin. So you could hurt him. And, yeah, I mean, so he was, was hilarious. Funny. I don't know if you've ever seen interviews, but dude, he was hilarious. Like every single interview, they're just like, "How do you think the fight's gonna go?" And he's like, "Man, I don't know. I don't know how it's gonna go." <laughs> like every single one, it's like, dude, this guy's a fucking goofball. If you haven't seen his fight with Arguello, definitely worth a watch too. Yeah, dude, he's uh gets folded by some body shots. No shame there. But he but... dropped Arguello, man, and just he's dangerous. Like you said, he's he was kind of like a poor man's Pacquiao. In terms of, like you said, herky jerky, mm-hmm. funky, unorthodox a little bit, yep. but just dangerous as shit. And, and just the worst type of style that a guy that O'Grady was going through the motions, you can tell he was, he, um, there was a lot going on with him. There was a lot of out of the ring politics. He, his head probably wasn't in the game. He's defending some shim sham title that his dad just brought up. And now he's fighting a different opponent. He's expected to fight Howard Davis Jr., who is a completely different style and a light puncher. Oh, yeah. And now yeah. he's fighting oh, a monster. Great, great amateur. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the guy couldn't break an egg. Now he's fighting yeah. a monster. <laughs> yeah, definitely some different preparation would go into that for sure. But needless to say, that was a massive derailment. Massive, yeah. massive derailment uh, for Sean O'Grady. But he was still at the time like 23 or something yeah, like that. you know, I mean, and... This is a lot of career to have gone through at only 23, you know? considering absolutely man but it's his career never really got back on track after you know he he had a couple of wins but then he loses to pete ranzani who was passed at that point to another long time contender and then he fights a loudmouth from new york named john the heat veterosa um if you're if you're if you're a fan from the east coast and you've been a long time fan you probably remember veterosa from the 80s he was a new york uh, he's a new york fighter very very loud very uh, braggadocious but fun a very fun fighter too. And he had an all action style. He was a short guy with kind of short arms, but he was like a windmill and he was tough. And um, he, yeah, he, he ends up stopping O'Grady, man. Like a guy that, a guy like Veterosa, O'Grady should have beaten, you know, only a few years ago. But you can tell by the time they ended up locking horns, O'Grady wasn't there. It was past it, it just wasn't right. And Veterosa beat him up and stopped him. So O'Grady, I think, even though, like you said, he was young, he was 24, he'd been boxing since he was six years old. That's like three careers already at that point, you know? So yeah, dude. 
he even knew the, the time was the call and he did. And that was the best decision he ever could have made for his life because he got out at the right time. He got out with his mind intact. Um, he never really suffered any issues from it. He still had his good looks and he had a, and he's had a great career as a, as a broadcaster after that. I think he occasionally still does stuff, but, yeah. um, but yeah, he was on Tuesday night fights. Yeah. And memorably for Tuesday night fights. Yep. Al Albert and the champ, Sean O'Grady. Yep. And I mean, like, I'm not going to lie and say it was like my favorite duo or whatever, but they were solid. Yeah, but they, they were, were pretty fun. solid. And it was just a fun show, man. On Tuesday nights, to be able to watch it, you never really knew what was going to happen to because sometimes some random shit would go down. And yeah, that was they, a great they, series. You know, they, yeah, it was cool. So definitely. Yeah, that was definitely a good series. All right. I think we got time for one more. Let's say. Sounds I, good. I think we could get a really, a really, really good one in there. Do it. Uh, this is, and also I think this is a very good representation of the idol or matinee idol, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mondo Ramos. Yes. For good sure. Call. And I, 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 I wouldn't have him up either for a good one. I apologize because I've stuck to Southern California for much of this. But a lot of pretty me. boys in Southern California, man. I don't know what's going on in the ocean over there. Look at me. I'm, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> put your face on a stamp, Pat. <laughs> look at me. Look at me. God. But no, I, I think I explained earlier. Hopefully, I adequately explained earlier why I, I kind of stuck to this area. Um, but Mondo Ramos, lightweight champion from 1969-1970, and then he also won the title again in 1972, uh, but also this is a pure S- Southern California from Long Beach, California, but actually there are, some, uh, he, there are also a lot of really good stories about Mondo Ramos. Uh, I won't tell them all, just do a couple because they're fun, but Don Chargan, uh, definitely a legendary promoter in California, uh, for a number of decades was somebody who was behind a lot of fighters and a lot of fights being put together in California on a number of different levels from the world-class level on down. Um, and in any case, Don was visiting the Ramos household in San Pedro, California at some point when Mondo was like 16 or something like that. And he was looking for Mondo Ramos' older brother, Junior. And apparently when he'd gone to his house, Mondo Ramos stepped up and said, I don't know why you're looking for my brother. I'm the real fighter in the family. And I guess just the, you know, the swag, the braggadociousness, whatever uh, impressed on Chargan. And he kind of, you know, started paying attention to Mondo Ramos. Mondo Ramos had long, longer, kind of shaggy, curlier hair, good looking kid, um, definitely very popular with women. And on top of that, uh, so a guy named Cal Eaton uh, used to be a big promoter in Southern California in L.A., and he died in 1966. His wife, his widow, Eileen Eaton, wound up taking over at the Olympic Auditorium and being the main promoter at the Olympic Auditorium. Eileen it was Eaton. Judo Jean LaBelle. You got it. Exactly you know at least part of the story um and and for anybody who's like gene labelle it's the judo fucking godfather who was also for a number of years ronda rousey's judo judica uh teacher master whatever you want to call it in any case goes far beyond ronda rousey but if you've ever seen any martial arts movies from like the 70s or 80s i guarantee you've seen gene labelle because he was in like every single one of them 
But um, and he also choked. He also choked out um, Steven Seagal. So yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. He yeah. made Steven Seagal shit himself. <laughs> he, he choked. I Steven love Gene Lavelle. He's one of the baddest, baddest men to ever walk the planet. It's just like this is like a verified story. Choked Steven Seagal unconscious and made him shit himself. Mm-hmm. A blessing of a person. Absolute <laughs> fucking delight. But um, that was that was Eileen Eaton's son. Yeah stepson son something like that um in any case eileen eaton wound up becoming almost certainly the most famous uh woman promoter of all time one of the most successful if not the most successful and was an absolute mainstay everybody knew her in la uh in the fight scene and mondo ramos was her her favorite fighter mondo ramos was her her go-to her go-to guy i think she just liked him you know uh not like that, but just he was a likable guy. He was a, a likable dude and a likable fighter. Um, in any case, by the early 1970s, though, by the time he had gotten the lightweight title again, he'd already started using drugs, regularly drinking alcohol, and those things quickly, very quickly brought his career down to contender level and then below, like real quick. Um, and yeah, he wound up having he, to he talked about that in full length many times how badly he fell off because of all the drugs and alcohol he was doing, which was immense. He wound up having to basically retreat and fight overseas and then fight these kind of odd venues around LA. And uh, he went from a, a just mega star, local, local mega star, to just an also ran dude real quick and, and it happened really fast man because when he came on the scene bro like he was you know that the like you said he was good looking everybody liked him he suffered a couple of early losses but i mean they again if that happens that's not like a, that's not the end of the world especially in the in the 60s uh so by the time he finally fights um carlos teo cruz for another completely forgotten fighter from the lightweight champion from back in the day um, he ends up losing a competitive decision to him. No shame in that. Teo Cruz was a really good fighter who had an unfortunate ending. But um, <clears throat> when he fought him in the rematch, he, you know, he ended up stopping him on a, on a cut of like, you know, became lightweight champion. But like you said, dude, the fame, the everything that got to him really quick, just being like the darling of the L.A. scene and now being the lightweight champion, just kind of, you know, it, shit really just took over really fast for him. Um, he was still able to beat some good guys like Yoshiaki Numata, who was a former junior lightweight champion, another guy completely forgotten and a very tough dude. There's a famous photo of him when he fought Numata because he stopped him around sixth um, of Numata in agony on the canvas. And he's laying there and you see Rojas being pulled away, not Rojas, excuse me. Um, you see Ramos being pulled away, like, you know, staring down at him. It's like a black and white photo. It's really cool. But like, so yeah, these were contemporary guys. They all fought each other around then, you know. But by the time he ends up fighting Esmail Laguna, who again a for, um, Hall of Famer, just dominant, really really badass lightweight, who's forgotten because Roberto Duran came on only a few years after him. Um, he was probably past it at that point. I'm sure you would agree with that. I'm sure he was already in the thralls of drugs and alcohol, but he was still able to compete to a degree you know, relatively at the top, but the signs were already there that he was slipping at. Things were going down. Jackie McCoy, for instance, the Hall of Fame uh, manager and trainer and Ramos's right-hand man had noticed the slide immediately. He documented it in his book, definitely um, in the corner where he talked about Ramos thoroughly and talked about what all the stuff was going on with him and his various issues and how he had to like deal with it and just kind of like, you know. Well, I don't remember what, uh, I want to say it was 
like maybe the most controversial endings or something like that. We did a show where we talked about uh, Mondo Ramos lost to Pedro Carrasco, the Spanish. Yes, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By disqualification. Correct. Yeah, yeah, where it was. Yeah, I mean, just absolute bullshit. Um, uh, Carrasco was a guy who was so so Spanish bulldog. Um, shit. What's his name? Um, bantamweight champion from the 1930s. Help me out here. Oh, 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 hold on. Um, uh, it's coming to me right now. Baltasar Sanchez. Yeah, thank you. Baltasar Sanchez. Yeah. Baltasar Sanchez is, depending on who you ask, considered the first Spanish world champion. But it there was kind of a, a weird push and pull with the bantamweight because you look at the European title and the lineage of the European title versus the lineage of the titles that um panama uh uh al panama al brown panama al brown held and it's kind of like he winds up getting stripped uh at i think two different points anyway long story short it's it gets a little bit cloudy so it depends on who you ask as far as whether or not carrasco is like the or the or whether sanctuary is the first champion if you don't believe he was, then Pedro Carrasco would be the first Spanish world champion. That's how long it was between world champions in Spain, unfortunately. But that was super controversial ending because Ramos was whooping that ass. And then the referee just, just like, you hit him low and then ends the fight. It's crazy. And it, winds up, it wound up being super controversial, but like the Spanish fans went nuts. They loved it. It was crazy, man. But anyway, uh, we brought up Mondo Ramos. I just, I, pretty sure we brought up on that controversial ending show and we talked a little about that if anybody wants to go back but yeah mondo ramos had a, a lot of really interesting moments in his career too and they talk about him on that documentary a little bit as well uh after that after the after his fights with carrasco he ends up fighting chango carmona brutal brutal brute of a fighter and at this point man he you know ramos is is document that throughout his career like after after his career ended that he was in the thralls of drugs at this point. He was drinking all the time. He was doing all kinds of crazy shit, heroin, all the stuff you can name it. He was doing it. And he was cooked. You know, he, he was completely cooked. His last big wins that he had before the Carrasco fight were against his good friend, Raul Rojas, another kindred spirit that um, had a very dark path, uh, future ahead of him. And um, Sugar Ramos, who was already past it at that point. But by the time he lost to, Car um, by the time he lost to Chango Camona, his career was cooked, man. He lost to Cherry Pineda, and then he started losing to other guys that he never would have lost to beforehand. And McCoy used to say it too, like these are guys are absolute bums that you're losing to. They get whooped by. Like this is I don't, you know. And pretty soon he was completely washed, you know. And then only in his mid twenties, a guy that went from like being on top of the world to having absolutely nothing. And um, it took him a long time after his career ended to really get himself together and pull himself together. But to his credit, he was able to do that just one last little tidbit in there since you brought him up chango carmona is that mondo ramos fight but the fight between mondo ramos and chango carmona yeah. uh is credited as being the fight that started the tradition of fights happening on mexican independence day weekend oh wow i never knew that that's pretty awesome true fucking story chango carmona he's the fighter who is and i actually have a photo of him somewhere he's an old dude now but uh still super alive? nice guy and anyway yeah oh, a nice. decent little tidbit to to take to the cocktail parties for sure <laughs> but yeah mondo ramos i think is a really good 
example of that kind of you know classification of fighter oh no totally and i'll tell you something too man about him um if you if you go in and you look at his record afterwards too like you go on box rip really quick you see they ended up in germany randomly for a few fights and then just kind of hit like the circuit um he ends up at the silver slipper in las vegas which used to hold um wednesday fights every wednesday and a smoke-filled little room that like sometimes would feature contenders, prospects, journeymen, whatever you want to name it, but they would always just be like a handful of fights. And um, when you end up on that circuit near the end, then you kind of know it's the end for yourself. All right, all right, I'm, I apologize. One last tidbit, one last tidbit, people. The Silver Slipper is the venue credited with starting ring card girls. That's awesome. All right. <laughs> That's true, though. Like, you would agree with that about the Silver Slipper. That was just like the, that was like the Vegas circuit fights. And a yeah. lot of guys built their records at the Silver Slipper that ended up becoming contenders. But there was also just like an endless sea of journeymen that just kind of fought each other every Wednesday there. Yes. It's kind of like State Line. Yeah, totally. It's like State Line, dude. It's like you, you ain't to Vegas yet. And like, uh, you know, you might, you might hit the Silver Slipper because you aren't to like, you know, well, Vegas hadn't really been, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, I guess it kind of depends because it had already been started, but it hadn't really been kicked into high gear. But anyway, long story short, yeah, dude, for sure. Silver Slipper was a little more secondary. For sure. And I also, to, to add the last thing on, on um, Mondo Ramos, I actually own his fist casting, which is pretty, yeah, from the Hall of Fame. You want to know why? <laughs> so here's a funny story. When he got, when well, he wasn't inducted, like the Hall of Fame does a thing where for inductees, they do your fist casting in for people visiting for the first time. They'll, you know, former champions, whatever, they'll usually yeah, yeah. do your casting. So when Ramos got there, that was the one and only time I met him. Actually, back over here, I have a photo of he and I together. When I look, hold on, let me grab this shit, see if I can show it. That's wild, bro. I didn't know that. Yeah, man. Yeah. So. I don't know if it's going to glare or not, but here's me and Ramos. Look how goofy oh, I look as a kid. Yeah, my God. <laughs> Bro, you definitely got an A in biology. Yeah, nah, man. I was not smart in school. I just looked like a nerd. But for whatever reason, I I just, nah, definitely not. But yeah. Anyways, um, so I was up there with him. He was getting his fist casted, right? And Ramos, as you can see, he was like, he had gained a lot of weight and his balance wasn't great or anything. So he had, we had to set him down to do it. And for the, the key for a fist cast to work is that you cannot move your arm at all. Yes, just I know it's difficult. But oh, so he messed still. it up and you got to you got to keep the messed up one? Yeah, because my fingers, well, I'm trying to hold his wrist in there too because they needed my help. I'm trying to hold his wrist in there and he moved it and my fingers end up stuck in there with him. So when I pulled it out and they handed it to me the next year, you, I have his fist, but then you see my pinky and like a, my thumb and like another finger kind of like caught on the side <laughs> of it. It's just there. Yeah. yeah, but literally, bro, but that's literally not one other fucking person on the planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's no, like yeah. the most unique shit. God, that's fucking cool. Yeah, I have his fist casting with my fingers attached to it. Yep. <laughs> I, I mean, it's mundane to you, but it's pretty cool to me. Anyway. No, it's pretty awesome, man. I mean, I've had it for so long now that I kind of like just whatever about yeah, it, but wild. like... I remember when I first got it, I was staring at it. I was like, this is crazy. And he doesn't have a, he didn't have a big fist. It was fat because I said his fingers were really fat and everything, but like, it's, he was cool. He was a really nice guy. He, he was really, he was very happy to be there. You're, uh, you're my teen idol now. <laughs> yeah, man. But that was a cool, that was a cool little story. Yeah. 
That's awesome, dude. Well, hey, man, uh, everybody who listened in and watched this teen idol, matinee idol, whatever kind of <laughs> idol episode, man, we appreciate you. Thanks so much because we've been getting some good feedback from the shows lately, and that's definitely keeping us going. I think it's keeping our motor going a little bit. Um, and well, anyway, I won't speak for errors, but I appreciate it. I oh, absolutely, it. man. This is a kidding me. All the feedback that we get, man, is um, beautiful. So I appreciate yeah, man, it. That's great. I'm just so having thank, fun doing this. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's so much fun for me too. So thank you, dude. Thanks again for, uh, you know, taking the time and putting in the work for Definitely. sure. Again, uh, if you listened in though, if you listen in via the podcast apps, please subscribe, leave us a rating. We like those things. We like feedback. If you watched on YouTube, also subscribe, please leave us a, a comment, reply, whatever the case may be helpful. Uh, but also, as far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both Facebook and on Instagram. We're also on Twitter, though, and we're individually there. Eris is there as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor, and we'll hopefully see you there, Eris. Talk to you soon, bro. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.